This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning and happy Friday to you folks. Hello, hello. You made it another week. Congratulations. And uh, hope you're having a great day. Interesting weather uh, in our neck of the woods. It feels like fall. Fall is here. And fall ball, water, rain. In fact, a guy, I had apparently a guy drove off the road today. Right in, near, right in front of me, basically. Really? Well, because we have that construction going on, so it feels like Le Mans. And he was, uh, you know, he was kind of racing. And he made the wrong, he followed the wrong yeah. lane. And it happened to be where all the trucks were parked for construction. Ooh. Nobody hurt, apparently. Um, crazy. Crazy life. We've got a lot to cover today. We're going to be talking about Big Pharma. You will not believe how much money Big Pharma is making. And it might even be actually hindering the treatment of the opioid epidemic. We hear all about the opioid epidemic. And it's it, it very well could be because some of the drugs that help actually um, – help you get off of opioids are too expensive um, and hard to get because Big Pharma may be holding them back a bit. Are those habit-forming as well? Yeah. Oh. So you go from a heavy <laughs> addiction to a lighter addiction and then a slight, a, a, a slow weaning process. So it's kind of like a nicotine patch yeah. of sorts. But Big Pharma is playing a big uh, part in all of it. So we'll talk to an expert that has been studying and following and really watching legally what they do. Uh, that is Big Pharma. And it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. It might make you a little frustrated with the big pharmaceutical companies if you already weren't frustrated. So we'll talk about that. By the way, Donald Trump as well. We'll get into that conversation. He's, Wrong. Yeah. He's going bipartisan. President Trump. Is uh, he's really playing the Democrats and the Republicans, and maybe creating? I know. I mean, we haven't had any real like bipartisan activities. Now the question is, can you trust it, or is just the, is this just more art of the deal? Hmm. Is he deal making or really being a bipartisan? It's all a smokescreen. And can you be a bipartisan if you're not a partisan? He just wants the wall. He's trying to find <laughs> anyone to give him a wall. Give me a wall. He's a deal maker. Heartbreaker, wall builder. <laughs> he's going to apparently. See, and he's got this reputation, I think, because he kept saying it, that he's a deal maker. He's a deal maker. And this would be the first deal, except within 24 hours, he walked back the deal. Yeah, except. Allegedly. That's just what he's saying, I think. Well, it, Behind the doors, I is think. Is there a deal? I think there's there might be an agreement. I think they were calling it an agreement. Yeah. To possibly agree. The semantics came in quickly. <laughs> it's just an – there's no agreement. But they need a DACA. See, what it is yeah. is it's DACA. It's a, and it's a really weird battle. It's kind of like Republicans want uh, the wall. Democrats want DACA. And so – Do the Republicans want us? the wall? Well, that's – well, a, a certain contingent of the Republicans yes, want some. a wall. Others think it's kind of already there. That's, but. that's this really weird line because he's not playing with two parties anymore. He's like playing with six parties. You know, kind Ooh, of yeah, a, yeah. a middle and extreme on each side. And then there's like factions. And then there's Chuck Schumer. Right. Chuck. Who, Chuck and Nancy. But I think it was Chuck that said he likes us. Yeah. He had an open mic in the Senate chambers. They're voting on something and you hear this. He likes us. He really likes us. <laughs> you know, I don't even think it's six parties. I think it's just his party. And he'll cry if he wants to. Chuck or Donald? Donald. Yeah. Cry if he wants to. 
You want to sing Cry that one? If he wants to, please don't. He'll keep going. It's uh, it, it's it's actually quite fascinating because I don't know that we've ever seen legislation where there may have been bipartisanship, have we? In a long time, like a rumor of partisanship. Yeah, you keep saying it's a rumor, but we'll see if it happens. Well, I mean, one group said it happened. I know, but then all of a sudden, someone's Twitter feed said it didn't happen. It was agreement to agree. And then leaders in Congress said it didn't happen, but then other people say it did, and yeah, so so it's all it's it's confusing. Yeah, exactly. But I guess we will see, and it probably sooner than later, people have to start shooting something. We have to start shoot what shooting hmm? like in a good like metaphorically. Oh, uh, okay. okay. Just, just, you got to be careful. You have to start taking out some of this legislation. Yeah, that's he's only also got not till, a good phrase. Taking d- out shooting. Yeah, yeah, sorry. You, you have to you have to take down. Mm. Peg. Better got no. <laughs> At some point, we're gonna have to. He, he's he, President Trump keeps saying he's got to have certain legislation like tax tax reform by January. That's and what they're saying, and everyone's like, that's not gonna happen. No. But hey, if he's a deal maker, he's a heartbreaker. Because the other thing, they just pushed the debt ceiling back to December. Yeah. Right? And funding the government back to December. Well, see, that'll be perfect timing for when you're trying to pass tax legislation. Well, they haven't done it, actually. They just talked about it. Remember, they had the meeting, but I don't think anyone actually signed any paperwork. And you have to yeah. put this stuff on paper. That's how this works. People never want to sign any paperwork. Plus, by the way, did you hear what's going on at Harvard? Yes. That's crazy town. So Chelsea Manning explain it invited to be a guest speaker che- guest Chelsea professor? Uh, je- fellow oh fellow That's a fellow term. at Harvard is like a really important distinction like you're you're a highly revered lecturer like some misguided community college would call you mm, um, not even that. <laughs> They just say, hey, fella. That they, was rude. That, that's fella, not fellow. Fella. Hey, fella. Um, so then they also invited CIA director Mike Pompeo to and, come speak. And uh, well, not even speak. They're on like some. Was he coming to speak? I, I don't know if Pompeo. Lecture? Well, a lot of the past CIA directors are on like a security oh, okay. council group that meets there. And, and he found out that they had extended this invite to Chelsea Manning, yeah. who. Uh, leaked a bunch of uh, state secrets. Has mm-hmm. 17 felonies or whatever for leaking state secrets. And he withdrew himself saying, I'm not going to be part of this. And then the, I get the, the dean or whoever's in charge of Harvard stepped out and said, oh, the Chelsea Manning thing was a mistake. Yeah, Sorry. we can't do that. So it's like. Hmm. She was going to speak at like the Kennedy School or be a fellow at the Kennedy School of Politics for a variety of issues that she's front, hmm. she's headlining on. Right. And. Then these big distinguished CIA directors, because the spies, the the secrets she traded in on and sold out to WikiLeaks or whatever, not sold out, but handed out to right. WikiLeaks, directly impact the CIA like incredibly. So all the CIA directors are like, we're not, no, then we're out of here. Yeah, we can't be involved. And the minute all the CIA people started leaving Harvard's higher committees, then. It sounds like the school tried to do something yeah. and then the university stepped in and said no. It's crazy. Yeah. This sounds an awful lot like why you couldn't go forward with your Harvard yeah. speech. Do you remember that? Yeah. Right. A lot because of intrigue. Of, yeah, because the, of my association with you two. The public outcry. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? Protests in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was crazy. But that was that was actually Harvard um, that was Harvard Tech. 
That wasn't Harvard, Harvard Tech. School. That was oh. that wasn't the University of Harvard. That was Harvard. It wasn't Harvard University. It was Harvard Tech. Okay. In Hartford, Connecticut. Actually, I think it was just some guy named Harvey that invited you to speak. It was Har- Harvey's Yard Tech. Harvey's Tire Yard. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a it's a tank. Less club. prestigious, it sounds. Not as yeah. Not as not as big. All right, a well, you know. But you know, there's always tomorrow. Yes. I hear uh, Yale is calling. Y e l l. Yell? It's a university to help you speak louder. It's the yodeling. <laughs> it's yodeling school. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They're calling, so who knows? Maybe I'll be a fellow there. That's the spokesperson from a Yale re- University. Recent graduate. Yeah, man, he's got pipes. That guy's got some pipes. So we'll uh, we will we'll be talking about all that fun stuff. Plus, of course, empty news. And uh, who better to do the real news than? is Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? In a series of tweets earlier this morning, President Trump slammed the loser terrorists in London who set off an explosive during rush hour on a train while the attack uh, to bolster his travel ban against people from six Muslim-majority nations. Another attack in London by loser terrorists, he wrote, just hours after at least 22 people were injured. Officials still considering uh, conducting a manhunt for the suspect who has not yet been identified. These are sick and demented people who were in the sights of Scotland Yard. Must be proactive, Trump added. Loser terrorists must be dealt with in a much tougher manner. The Internet is their main recruitment tool, which we must cut off and use better. And the travel ban to the U.S. should be far larger, tougher, more specific. But stupidity, that would not be politically correct. Okay, so this is one of those situations where it's okay to say stupid, idiotic, loser, because they're terrorists. Stupidly, that would be, yeah. Man, if my mom were listening to the show, your mouth would be so washed out with soap right now. He's talking like a sailor. He's tweeting. I'm sorry, he's tweeting like a sailor. (laughs) (laughs) He's a sailor tweeter. So there you go. Uh, North Korea fired at least one ballistic missile toward Japan early Friday morning. Uh, local time in South Korea, actually Thursday afternoon or so. I'm here. I'm not sure. Holy cow! It's Friday now. Uh, South Korea news agency reports a missile reportedly passed over Japan without striking the country and landed approximately 1,200 miles east of the coast of Japanese news agency reports. So it actually, it went further <sighs> than the last one they yeah. launched over Japan. What do you do? Putting Guam in within range is kind of the story I read this morning. So look out, Guam! Don't tick off Guam. Because it will be there. That's what we said. Don't mess with Guam. Uh, Until this week, Facebook offered several anti-Semitic advertising categories, allowing advertisers to reach nearly 2,300 people who express interest in those horrible anti-Semitic categories. PoPublica, have you ever looked at their website? No. They do a lot of um, just research-type journalism. Okay, yeah. And so they started poking around in Facebook's ad... uh, uh, software. Yeah. If you're a company trying to post an ad, you go in and apparently you say, okay, I want to pay this much. Here's my ad and I want to go to these groups. I'm looking for white Aryan racist Well, one of, one of them is just straight up Jew haters. That was one of the hmm, categories. What? Yeah. I cut the other Tell ones out really because feel. they're not really... Unbelievable. And, and this was just acceptable Quite offensive. For, for a while. Um, well, let's, it says Facebook removed the categories after reporters made the company aware of their existence. Facebook said the categories were created by an algorithm, not employees, so they are generated automatically based on information users share with Facebook and their interests. So some algorithm, I guess, created by some computer, then pulled up searches or whatever, that, and, and, and one of them was... They're all anti-Semitic and... 
and then no no employee stuff. looked over this list. Well, apparently, and said, they don't look at these things. It's all automated. Hold so, on, this is the algorithm they make all their money on. Exactly. Okay. ProPublica acted on a tip, decided to test the system, and spent three hundred dollars or three thirty bucks on promoting posts uh, using categories like Nazi Party. Jew hater and Hitler did nothing wrong. Those are the categories they selected. And uh, after selecting their audience, ProPublica submitted their ad promoting an unrelated article. Just one random yeah. article from their website. No, and about it, love and peace. Probably. Okay. And it was approved by Facebook within 15 minutes because it's basically an automated process. Hmm. At some point, there's a human, I think, that looks at the ad and goes, all right, whatever, and then tosses it in. Because apparently there's not much vetting that goes on, but they Facebook tried to say that there are humans involved at some some way along the line, but they well, didn't really define where. That's so. interesting. So you could this is how if you were a terrorist, you could also go find despondent, angry, anti-government people. Right. Or as the story I read today, a Russian troll farm sent ads to Texas or Texan separatists. You know, there's always a group in Texas, the yeah. Texas that wants yeah. to leave the nation. And had them show up to a anti-Hillary Clinton rally. Oh, that would be smart. That was really the angle they were working. I'm sorry, a Russian troll farm? Yes. Did you wonder where the trolls went? They're breeding trolls uh-huh. in Russia? Yeah, they're all working They're working to just mess up I elections. I do not remember seeing them. And if you spin them, their hair goes straight. It's really cool. Mm. Later on, the website Slate.com, they jumped in and started poking around in the uh, ad targeting tool, and they found 18 other very hateful categories. They inform Facebook, and I imagine they're not there anymore. But this algorithm just creates things based on it's, people's interests. Apparently, it's a reflection of humanity. Do you see the uh, banner that was un- unveiled at a uh, at a Boston Red Sox game? That no. made no sense. They they dropped it in the uh, outfield over the uh, the big well, green monster, yeah. and it said, "Racism is Amer- as as American as baseball." And it just hung there for a while until they sent somebody up to take it down. How do hey. we interpret that? I don't know. Hey, Jimmy, can you go take down the racist sign? <laughs> So are they are they pro racism or no. anti racism? We've been, you know, well, since since baseball started, there's been racism. There's always baseball. Is that what they're trying to say? Baseball? No, uh, racism is as human as Adam and Eve. They should have said human then. I uh, know that was different. So, yeah, stuff like that, that's going to be part of everything now. You can't just watch a baseball game. You have to— Everything's politicized. Everything like has—somebody has to make some statement in every situation. Becomes difficult. Um, uh, Finally, the Cleveland Indians on Thursday night claimed their 22nd consecutive win with a 3-2 victory over the Kansas City Royals. Wow. The win set a, quote, modern-day record for the longest winning streak in Major League Baseball, the longest in 101 years. The team trailed for most of the game before rallying in the ninth inning with their victory, ultimately credited to a leadoff double from second baseman Jose Ramirez and a walk-off double from outfielder Jay Bruce. There has been a healthy amount of debate about what is actually the Major League Baseball record for the longest winning streak? Okay. Right? So there's another What's record. What's the debate? Isn't it so in the books? In 1916, the New York Giants are credited with winning 26 games. The Elias Sports Bureau recognized that as a record, even though the Giants had one tie in that streak. Oh, in the middle there. Yeah. Back then, tie games were thrown out and the game was replayed. And the Giants won the makeup game. There are no ties in baseball. So they played 27 games because they had to make up one of the games because mm. it ended in a yeah. tie. Yeah. So is a tie a win? No. No. A tie is like kissing your sister. It's recognized as a win what? in the record books. 
So uh, some would argue that it's true, a true record. Others would scoff at the idea that a tie being part of a winning streak. So Major League Baseball decided just to call 21 wins the modern record. Now if the Indians have reached 22, they're only chased. Now they've reached 22. Now they're chasing 26. When you consider it legit or not, if they win 27, they'll end the debate because they have the there win. There you go. Can you give us your best scoff, Matt? Scoff? Yeah. <laughs> oh. mm, that was more of a cough. That was a... <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to like dig down deep, and then <laughs> that was too much of a physical activity for you. <laughs> too much phlegm in that scoff. He's dying there. Wow, that got me going there. Hey, uh, little advice for everybody. Apparently, don't eat apricot pits. What? I know. You can eat apricots all you want. The kernels don't eat them. A guy was poisoned taking. He was eating apricot kernels because. He believed the seeds could help fight cancer, his cancer. Did he have, like, research? And well, that, Did somebody yeah. in Mexico tell him that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. Uh, but after, apparently after conducting a battery of tests, doctors were stunned to find that high levels of cyanide in the man's blood. Yep. And reports, uh, they, what they found is cyanide is in the seeds of apricots. Whoa. Yeah. How do you even swallow that? No, he chews them, I guess. Oh. He breaks them down. You could blend them up into about, a nice, fine powder. What about avocado pits? What about them? Are they consumable, or should we be trying to consume Are they really those? hard to— They're huge, is what I'm asking. I mean, can you chop those up and— No, but I take a I take a glucosamite pill that's about the size of an avocado pit. Okay, well— I actually don't take it. I just gag on it for about three minutes. <laughs> And then I'd throw it out the window. I think if you take the pit and actually put it in your armpit. Oh, wow. You don't. Uh, what do you get? What do you get? What happens? Well, you get you get an apricot pit pit. And that will stem off the cancer. Stem. Sounds like the pits. Yeah. Stems, pits. Don't even try. Cancer. Yeah. So <laughs> the rule is don't, don't believe every little thing you read. Mm. Just because, and but it's you're you've got cancer, you're desperate, but don't, you know, don't go to the pits. Well, Man, there that, you go. That advice was the pits. No. <laughs> don't you love that lady's laugh? Can you hear it's, the lady's yeah, laugh? Yeah, she's right at the end. She's like the one. There's always one person yeah. in the crowd that overlaps. Yeah, she's. Yeah. <laughs> well, you want to be heard. You she want to be heard on the album. You can't back it down. Like yeah, you once, it's, to, once you get it started, you, it's like a cough. It's like with people that sing with a choir, you got to blend in. Blend. And then all of a sudden, there's that one person that wants mm-hmm. to have this solo, and it's like, yeah. it's not your job. Just blend into the crowd, yeah. people. She's, she's what we call the blue-haired vibrato. <laughs> there's always that one person that wants their 15 minutes of fame. They brag to their friends, hey, did you hear my laugh on that comedy album? That was hilarious. That was you? Yes, I'm the blue-haired laugh brato. How could you tell, tell my hair was blue in the album? You can tell. Oh. Just if you listen close enough, you'll hear the blue hue. Uh, up next, folks, we're going to be talking about how big pharma may be hindering the treatment of the opioid epidemic. They may be, you know, we've heard the stories about how they're, they keep raising prices of our drugs, our pharmaceuticals, and now they may even be raising prices and making it even harder for the, the drugs we need to actually combat certain addictions. Interesting insight up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. You know, drug overdoses is now a leading cause of death for people younger than 50, and opioid addiction is an epidemic that contributes significantly to those numbers. Is it possible, though, that the pharmaceutical industry is partially to blame? Here to talk to us about how big pharma is hindering treatment of the opioid addiction, epidemic addiction, addictions and epidemic, is uh, Robin Feldman. Robin is a professor um, and director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California, Hastings. And we are honored to have you here. Thank you, Robin, for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This is, as you say in your article, it's it's a crippling problem. It's a total epidemic. And um, I, I guess what everyone is always trying to figure out is what's behind the epidemic? What is causing such, a, such an increase in high use of opioids? Well, opioid abuse is a complicated problem, and there are no easy answers. But one troubling element is the role pharmaceutical companies have been playing in strategies that hinder treatment of opioid addiction. So addiction treatment regimes like Suboxone and Naloxone exist. The patents and exclusivities have expired on such drugs, but companies use various games to keep competitors out and keep the prices high. Uh, and the prices are shockingly high. So Suboxone oral film strips now cost over $500 for a 30-day supply, and even simple tablets cost a whopping $600 for a 30-day supply. Wow. And, and we, are, we are talking about um, a drug that studies show need to be taken as a long-term regimen. So the, the cost alone puts the medication out of reach for many people. And this is because they, I guess, the government gives an advantage to the pharmaceutical companies to, to, to pay for all of their research, to pay for them, allows them the opportunity, I guess, to, to make really good money on the drug. And then, but when, um, I guess, the, the patents, uh, I guess, expire, um, normally, doesn't the drug price come down? But I guess that's not happening here. Well, drug research and development is slow and expensive. Intellectual property, such as patents or other benefits, give companies the opportunity to recoup their costs and profit from their inventions. But all good things must come to an right. end, and the same is true for patents. Uh, we want the drug companies to go back to the bench, develop new treatments. We want generic versions to come in and bring the drug prices down. Um, unfortunately, drug companies are refusing to acknowledge that change and, and playing games to keep competitors out. So let me give you a couple of the examples of ones that specifically have come up in the opioid addiction area. So we Please. have an opioid abuse treatment drug, Suboxone. Mm -hmm. The company that makes Suboxone has engaged in a variety of games to, to keep generics out, but this included filing petitions uh, at the Food and Drug Administration to try to block the entry of a lower-cost generic drug. Um, and in these uh, petitions, the, the brand-name company asked the FDA to require things for the generic drug that the agency doesn't have the ability to do hmm. or that we wouldn't want them to do. Uh, and in one of the key pe petitions, it was denied but it resulted in enough delay that it translated into roughly $600 million of unchallenged sales to the brand name company. That's a nice return for a petition that was denied. 
eventually and probably cost about $25,000 in legal fees to file. So we see this all the time. The agency denies 80% of these petitions as it denied this one, Uh, but it takes time, and during that time, other competitors can't get on the market. And now, I study the pharmaceutical industry. I see these games being played out all across the board. Oh, and meanwhile, people are addicted and can't get off their addiction. I mean, it's tragic. These, these prices call, and, and these types of games cause real pain for real patients. Uh, and, and it's not just a few bad apples like the infamous Martin Shkreli, yeah. whose company raised the price of a drug from $13.50 to $750 overnight. This, this is business as usual across the pharmaceutical industry. And, and the result is extraordinary uh, profits for the, the drug companies just, just from raising the prices of drugs that already exist. So in, in a recent year, 80% of the growth in profits of the 20 largest drug companies came just from raising new prices, not new products, not new exploration, just taking the prices of the drugs they have, raising the prices, and then using games to keep anybody else from competing that would bring the drug down. Uh, that Again, that translates into real real cost, real pain for the governments that are trying to provide these drugs, for the patients who are trying to access them, for the communities who are impacted by all of these various diseases and problems. Yeah. When you, when you hear uh, the, word, the phrase opioid epidemic, the opioid manufacturer must just be having a heyday, right? Because well, it is, there's a lot yeah. of money being made. It, it, is, it is ironic that the problem we have now, which affects so many people, has had the effect of creating enormous profits, both for the companies that are making these drugs that are then abused, and then also for the companies that are making the drugs to try to fight off the addiction. Squeezed in the middle are the patients uh, who get addicted, and then also uh, particularly the local, state and local governments who are trying to treat the addiction, the uh, firefighters and emergency room doctors who are, who are on the ground and doing their best to, to save people's lives and to, to fight these in as many places as they can. So in addition to some of the games that I described before, uh, we're also hearing from state and local officials about various efforts that are done to, um, to, to keep competitors out at that level. For example, lobbying governments to say that the drugs that they use in emergency rooms to treat addiction can only be administered in certain combinations, which are, again, more expensive to access, or requiring uh, particular types of training or saying that only certain people can administer them. Again, these have the effect of um, protecting the brand name drug companies and allowing them to keep prices high. Great for the drug company, not so good for patients, not so good for communities. Absolutely. Wow. And uh, again, I guess we start to see the the money behind it and uh, the unlimited resources to keep complicating or adding more levels of um, complexity, lobbying governments. It, It does keep 
it keeps the the drugs aflowing. Um, let's take a break and come back. We're speaking again with Robin Feldman, is who is the Harry and Lillian Hastings Professor and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California Hastings. When we come back, we'll talk about what role is the FDA playing in all of this. And if any, and what role should they be playing trying to understand big pharma and its impact on the opioid addiction problem we have in our country. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, folks. We are joined by Robin Feldman, uh, who is the Harry and Lillian Hastings Professor and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California, Hastings. She received her uh, Juris Doctorate, Doctorate degree from Stanford Law School, graduating the Order of the Coif, and then receiving the Urban a. Sontheimer Award for graduating second in the class. And we're honored to have her here today. She's talking to us about how big pharma is hindering her treatment or is hindering treatment of the opioid addiction epidemic. Robin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This is, um, I think, such an important topic. And I think a lot of us, you know, we, we, we're trying to just understand what's going on with um, this opioid epidemic, but also we kind of sense that there's big pharma, right? And there's big companies making money on a lot of these drugs and making money not just on the drug, but on the drugs used to get people off of the drug. Um, and and then to hear some of the stories you were talking about in the last segment about really the gamesmanship that they're playing, the monopoly that they're creating, everything they're doing to keep generic brands off of the market, which could help a lot of people heal through this process and probably save a lot of municipalities, a lot of families, a lot of insurance companies, a lot of money as well. Um, talk to us about the the role of the FDA. It, it doesn't seem like the FDA is leading this this uh, the pharmaceutical companies as aggressively or strongly as maybe they need to? The FDA is designed to be a safety uh, and sometimes efficacy uh, agency. In other words, they're supposed to tell us whether the drug is safe, and that's the job they are designed to do. They're not designed to try to police when companies are trying to block each other and keep them out of the market. And so there is a real void in terms of uh, putting pressure on companies that engage in bad behavior. And the FDA is completely ill-equipped to do that. They don't have the right internal department set up. They may not even have the right directions from Congress to do it. They certainly don't have the will to engage in this yeah. activity. And so it's not, it's not happening. I think what's important important for listeners to understand is how much this is business as usual across the pharmaceutical industry. I published a book from Cambridge Press uh, this summer called Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Out, and it, it lifts the curtain on, on some of these games. What, what stands out, I think, so much is how prevalent these games are throughout the entire industry. We're, we're not seeing open and vigorous competition in drug markets. We're seeing baskets of games that repeatedly, year after year, drag out and keep the, the drug prices high so that individual citizens can't afford to buy them, 
can't access their medications, and local government um, uh, budgets are hurting as well. And it must be if if we're not seeing a lot of uh, if if they're not making their money in all of the innovation, and they're making it by running and writing an old drug for for years and years and years and blocking competition. It seems like then we probably aren't getting some of the better drugs to market faster or the newer drugs or the new innovations. Do you do you sense it stifles innovation? I have great concerns about innovation within the pharmaceutical industry. Ideally, once a pharmaceutical's original patent has expired, we want them to go back to the bench. We want them to look for new things and innovations. We, we don't want the innovations at a drug company to be happening in the legal and marketing department. We want them in the research and development right. department. But right now, the system is designed so that it rewards all of these types of games that, that block out competition and keep the prices high. If that's where the reward is, that's what the companies are going to do, and that's what we have now. We don't have a regulatory system that's set up in a way that can block it. The pharmaceutical companies have been faster and more clever than we have, and unfortunately, consumers and, and individual patients are paying the price. Boy, and you, you if you've ever met somebody or, or interacted with somebody that's struggling with these addictions, it's tragic, and they do need uh, drugs and affordable drugs um, to, to be able to, uh, to get off of them. Talk about uh, what you'd like to see happen. Like if, you, if we could give you just a magic wand and you could uh, create maybe more regulation, more price management, what would you want to see um, in order to start dealing with some of these big pharma issues? So there are a couple of key approaches that would be tremendously important for bringing pharmaceutical game-playing under control. The first is a very simple one, um, and that is sunshine. A little sunshine goes a long way. Many of these drugs are, I mean, sorry, many of these games happen under the radar. They are difficult to find. They're difficult for regulators and legislators to to control. They're difficult for the public to understand what's going on. And we need different laws that require all of the information to be public. What is the actual price of the drug? What are the agreements between the drug companies and the different entities that end up paying for them? What are the different uh, uh, behaviors that happen? How can we find them? then those can be translated in ways that legislators and regulators understand, and the public can pick up the phone and say, I don't like that, to their representatives. And competitors can say, I see what they're doing. I can compete and have a better price. So we need transparency. We need sunshine. The second is we need to limit the ability of a brand-name company to string out games one after another. When I was testifying in before a congressional committee last year, I described how these games add up, and I noted that we have a billion here, a billion there, and that adds up to real money with taxpayers paying. Mm. We need to change the regulations so that pharmaceutical companies get one bite at the apple, not coming back again and again. We also need more effective mechanisms for um, cracking down on bad behavior quickly. Now, whether those are ways to enhance the anti-competitive laws, the antitrust laws, um, or whether those are ways to uh, 
bring actions for regulatory abuse. However you try to package it, we need some kind of penalty. Right now, there are no effective penalties for engaging this behavior, and the rewards are astronomical. How would we expect the pharmaceutical industry to react in an environment like that? Right. I mean, it's they're handicapped. They're so handcuffed. But then again, too, I'm assuming a lot of the big profits from big pharma are going to big lobbying and big, uh, you know, big management of our elected officials. So the pharmaceutical industry has had a history of spending uh, enormous amounts on lobbying both parties, both sides of the aisles. Um, however, in the modern age of social media, we have an educated electorate, and what individual citizens say matters. So if individuals begin to reach out to their representatives, both on the national level but also locally at states, at the state level, um, I believe the change can be made. States are going to be enormously important players in this game. They are carrying the burden of treating the opioid addiction. They are carrying other burdens in the healthcare system. And individuals do have power. If you reach out to representatives about the problems that you are facing and the concerns you have, uh, we're fortunate to live in a democracy where there's pressure to respond to that, no matter how much lobbying money is out there. So true. And such such great advice, I think, for all of us. In fact, maybe a great place for all of us to begin would be looking into your book, Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off of the Market. Uh, Robin Feldman is her name. Again, the Harry and Lillian Hastings Professor and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California, Hastings. Uh, Robin, thank you again for your time. Thanks for being with us. What a powerful, powerful uh problem we're facing, folks. And it's going to take information, like Robin was saying, and it's also going to take some initiative. Really, it sounds like on the state level, something we can all, you know, do. We can step out. You might even know your state and elected officials. Push on them. Give them this information. Share this podcast with them and let them understand uh, one of the ways to take on um, the, the opioid epidemic might be taking on big pharma a little bit more. Interesting, interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger, leading healthier, happier lives. Okay, friends, we are at it again. We're going to be talking about um, some some etiquette. Uh, you know, when I when I took these boys out, Jeff Simpson, Terry South, I took them to lunch once, and they just are animals, flat out. And so I I realized that you know these guys need some guidance. They need they need some etiquette, some proper dinner skills. So we uh, we actually visited the first few of these on this list, and we'll, we'll get a couple more here. But these are from actual servers at restaurants. Yeah. Their ideas of uh, what you're doing as a customer that you probably shouldn't be doing. you got to stop doing it. it was, this I thought was, the customer's uh, always right, though. Uh, yeah. remember what the, you remember what the server said to Jeff? What's that? Put your shirt back on. That's right. Get your feet off the table. Mm-hmm. No uh, shirts, no shoes, So no this shirts. is from uh, Thrillist.com. They have a quote here. As Cracker Barrel founder Dan Ivins... Uh, himself once famously quipped, 
Manners are a sensitive awareness of the feelings of others. If you have that awareness, you have good manners, no matter what fork you use. Huh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Great point. So, use the right fork. Um, moving on with the, the list here. If your kids are distracting other tables, you are a problem. Come on. That, like, just, is, that just, is that just making noise, or is that actually going over there and eating off another person's plate? Yes. This is coming from the from people that were never kids themselves. Yeah, grow up. They were up. just born grown up. Yeah. Those are the hardest. So it people. says kids in restaurants are way too varied to make a one-size-fits-all proclamation as to whether or not they ought to be present. That's up to the individual restaurant. Okay. But if precocious little Braxton throws a Category 5 tantrum and you haven't whisked him outside in the first 30 seconds, you're making him everyone else's problem. Mm-hmm. It's not okay and cute because your kid's on the floor. What, okay, what about just the couple that's arguing? Should, what should we do with them? Same thing. Because they're just as, I mean, do you take your spouse out? We've been out on a date and have been near a couple that was arguing the whole time. It was very awkward. Hey, next time, I, let me give you some cards. I want you to give them my card. Really? Yeah, it's good for business. Well, she took off without him. Uh, <laughs> oh, and he had to pay the, tick, the bill, too. Well, huh? it was Cafe Rio. So. Oh, yeah. The menu, this is the next one, the menu is not a blank canvas for your creativity. Oh, you can't draw. Don't on mix it. and match. They'll tell you if you can add or you yeah. know substitute or something, but don't just sit there. So this it goes asking for a substitute, fresh ground beef for the duck, and a pack of melted green skittles for the citrus sauce is going too far. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. When people are like creating their own thing. So it says restaurants should be willing to cater to you, of course, but you can't expect them to act like your own personal chef. Yeah. It says if you want that, just get rich. So you can pay for it yourself, you know. Just yeah. <laughs> Get your own. I chef. want my chicken to be hand plucked. Hand plucked, please. Do not make servers split the check fifteen ways. How about fourteen ways? If you have a, a pack <laughs> of friends and you're all, all at the table, uh, don't say we're all paying individually. That's insane. so. Would they rather have fifteen tickets? Yeah, it says entire articles could be written on this very topic, but it boils down to this. You're an adult. You probably have Venmo, which is the the app on your phone. And if you definitely have access to an ATM, just use modern technology to your advantage. Have someone pay the check and then pay them back later. Don't make us do it. But hold it. Let me ask you this. Is it our job to make their life easier or their job to make our life well, easier? We're f- paying good them. Question. Right. Good but, question. But 15 ways. Yeah, 15 ways is too much. No, but how about six? <laughs> six ways now, is too much. Now, hold know. on a Come second. Come on, that's not bad. 15 ways. Don't they want 15 different tips? That's a great point. But not all the tips are going to be the same. Not when you're only tipping 6%. Yeah. That, that's a really big question because I would think that they would love us no matter what we do. But apparently they don't. By the way, I would love to hear the thoughts of fast, casual employees who have the iPad that asks for the tip. You're oh. just walking up to the counter and they yeah. want a tip. No, I'm yeah, like, no. I wonder what their thoughts are on this. Don't eat yellow snow. That's your tip. Uh, the next <laughs> the tip here is you can't send food back just because you're bad at ordering. Ooh. Oh, yeah. You can't go, oh, I didn't. I don't think I want this. It's My like bad. if there's a problem with the food, yeah, you can send it back. But you can't send it back because you ordered, say, the spaghetti, and then you get it there and, oh, I don't really want spaghetti. But what if it doesn't taste good to you? Well, that's different. There's a problem with the food. But my, I, I honestly, I have rarely sent anything back. I don't think I ever have. I would eat it. It would have to be horrible. I've sent some things back uh, out of my mouth, but I don't want to get too graphic. Thank you. Never blame a server for a kitchen mistake. 
If your server accidentally told the kitchen to make you ribeye uh, a teeth-shattering flames of Hades super well done instead of the requested <laughs> medium rare, that's one thing. But it's highly unlikely they asked the cooks to make your broccoli soggy, and it's certainly not their fault if the restaurant runs out of salmon. Yeah. That's that's like berating the dude who sells popcorn at the movie theater because you thought the uh, Suicide Squad movie was bad. <laughs> it's a classic it's case true. of shooting the messenger. Yeah. They're just helping you. Hey. Someone else cooked your food. Don't get mad yeah. at them. Just ask them politely. Could I get that's this fixed? Good. Yeah. The, and by the way, it's not even worth getting mad at the people in the kitchen. No. Because they're just going to... They're probably not, in your food. Yeah, not getting paid very much. Be either. aware that everyone's touching your food while you're doing this. Yeah. Um, and the next one we'll get to here, lying to get free food is not okay. <gasps> like lying about your really? birthday? Some well-meaning restaurants give out free food or discounts based on birthdays, military service, or just because they're good people. If you try to score some said free food through some manipulation of the truth, you're either a horrible teenager showing off for his horrible friends which they go back to the Braxton kid who was having yeah. the, the fit. Uh, or or even worse, you're an adult, and for some reason you still do this. You should grow up. Now, Good is there point. like a hero discount? Because, you know, sometimes I'll see a cat in the road and I'll, I'll swerve to avoid it. <laughs> no. I think that no. deserves a discount. And then it says the servers already have to sacrifice their dignity when they half-heartedly serenade you around on uh, your one-candle Sunday. Don't sacrifice yours by yeah. lying. Come on. Grow up, folks. Grow up. Great, uh, great tips on etiquette and manners by who else than Terry South. We'll continue the journey, folks, next hour. Stick with us, helping you be the good in the world right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, and a happy Friday to you. You made it. You've done it. Another week. And, you know, many are just starting their week because they've, they they work on the weekends. But uh, we're going to get you through it one way or another. We're also going to help you elevate your life. That is the goal of this show. Dr. Matt here and along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South will bring you the news, the empty news. And uh, interesting thing about the empty news, you'll get things you didn't even know you needed to know about. Did you know that? I did not even know that. By the way, did you know that fairies are a problem now? Um, yes, I've known this for many years. Apparently causing some road problems Well, in and the UK. The Tooth Fairy... Or in Ireland. Uh, never left enough money. Never enough. Yeah, uh, you, you had what we call a cheap Tooth Fairy. My kids... <laughs> no, no offense to anybody that may be involved. My parents, uh, or my kids, have a very... Um, uh, what would you say? Affluent Tooth Fairy... Maybe it's their teeth that, you know, maybe they have yeah. sweet teeth or yeah. something. My kids have huge teeth. No. Yeah. It's simply because um, I think our tooth fairy doesn't have much change. So our tooth fairy has to go ah. more with bills and of any size that might be in the house. But then did you ever speak to other children who would always say, the tooth fairy doesn't love me as much? No. Really? We didn't know. We I don't speak to other kids. I think the Tooth Fairy discriminates. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. How, How did, did we get, get on the Tooth Fairy? Oh, fairies. We got right? 75 <laughs> cents for my tooth. Really? I got $20. What a ripoff. And a new uh, Pokemon card. Yeah. 
my, we got a blender. <laughs> really? That's all we had in the kitchen. So we'll be talking about empty news, including um, an Irish MP uh, explanation for road problems or ferries. They're out there. You got to be careful. You never know what you might run into. Plus, we've got a wonderful guest to talk about a problem you may not even know could be a problem. Right. So if you are if you belong to a religious organization, you probably get a lot out of that organization. You get social relationships. You get uh, your meaning, a sense of purpose in this life, a sense of belonging in an age where people are disconnecting. But what happens if you don't have any of those connections? And we have a wonderful guest that will tell us her personal story. If you mark down that you are, as far as religion goes, if you're one of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that we've talked about on the show before, the people that don't have a religious affiliation, what what are you missing out on and what can you do um, to kind of make up for some of those benefits that come along with religion? And also we'll just the, that. the idea that if you do have a religion— and nope. there's someone on, you know, someone near you, or in, they don't. You'll kind of aware of that, and you can you can bring them into your circle. At least the the social end of it. They yeah. may not want the religion, but there's some social aspects yeah. of it. Uh, I'm like thinking of my neighborhood. I wouldn't know anybody well, if I didn't go to church because I never leave my house. Yeah, that's well, you're a, good a hermit. Point. You're a hermit, and so you know, I I don't I don't like I'm not the guy that walks across the street when I see you mowing right. your lawn because I, I figure you're mowing your lawn. I don't want to bother you. Speaking of being a hermit, could you do something about that beard, please? I know. I'll have to shave. There are flies. There's some birds nesting in Mm -hmm. it. I understand. And And I have this weird rash now. I think it's contagious. I think it's when he hugged you. Um, (laughs) It's the manifesto that bugs me that you're writing up in your back shed. Well, I did finish the... uh, Chapter one? No, A&E had a... a, It's called Manhunt uh, Unabomber. Oh, you did? So, you know... Ted Kaczynski? Yeah, feeling kind of... You know, inspired. He had a manifesto. I was like, well, let's give it a shot. Yeah. I love your sunglasses. Yeah. I, I caught a glimpse of it, and all it said, line after line, was all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Red rum. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll get to that fun. Um, also, of course, a little preview of screen cleaning, which is the final hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We have uh, we've released that hour to Jeff Simpson. You were holding it hostage before. We were holding it. it you, we used to just, it we used now. to just do another hour of the show, but then we thought, hey, Jeff is really has this hankering for um, talking about movies, television, screen stuff, everything that has to do with your weekend. So we thought, how great would it be if we just took the last Grocery hour? Grocery shopping? No. Oh. If we took the last hour well, and then released the Kraken. Fertilizing the lawn? No. That's something I'm going to do this weekend. That's what you doing this weekend? Yeah. Uh, yeah the not... hedges? I'm going to trim the hedges? Uh, no. Hmm. Sports? You're going to watch sports? Well, sure. I don't think well, this will have anything to do with sports either. For a little while until the score gets out of hand and then I'll move on. Oh, yeah. He, he will probably talk about the flailing Dodgers. Flailing? Sorry. They just, they've already clinched a playoff berth. And now they're just coasting into the playoffs by losing all their games. Hey, They've yeah. won their last two. They have to win at least six of their last 17, I believe. Their magic number is seven, and there are about 18 games left. Yeah, so they're done. No. Oh, they're in. They're, they're in. in the playoffs. And then they'll lose because they've been losing a lot. Right. Well, I won't disagree with that. There's a trend. So we'll talk about screen. We'll talk with Jeff about his show, Screen Cleaning, find out what's coming up there. 
and, uh, you know, of course, cover all the other headlines and the empty news. So much to do. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? President Donald Trump signed a Senate resolution on Thursday uh, evening condemning the violence and domestic terrorist attack that occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia in August. The resolution rejects white nationalists, white supremacists, the uh, Ku Klux Klan, and neo-Nazis and other hate groups. Just hours before signing the resolution, Trump returned to an old talking point, blaming anti-racist protesters for some of the violence at the white nationalist gathering. You have some pretty bad dudes on the other side also, Trump said, equivocating uh, counter-protesters with the white nationalists. Now, because of what happened since then with Antifa, who's a... Uh, Who? No, yeah, it's th- a... They're a group that just shows up to cause a lot of problems. They're left-leaning. They're anti-fascists. Okay. They see the white nationalists as fascists, so they're anti-fascists, but their idea, instead of protesting, they just run in and punch you in the face. Ah. Generally. Now, they're like the... the the three stooges yeah i don't really see what the uh the point because i think they're just causing more problems but sure. uh yeah so when you look at a what at really what's happening since charlottesville a lot of people are saying and people have actually written see that's the people are saying and i'm hearing well trump's kind of mixed it up now now it's people saying and have written right so he's kind of mixing that up yeah. to keep us on our toes he goes gee trump may have a point I say there's some very bad people on the other side also. Trump has previously defended some participants in the white nationals gathering as fine people. Okay. So he kind of signed it, but maybe begrudgingly signed it. (laughs) He signed it because Congress kind of, er, Congress almost unanimously agreed. Almost. And there was three three hanging out. Yeah, Yeah, three three guys that weren't going to sign it. And uh, so Trump kind of felt like he was cornered, and he doesn't like to be cornered into doing things he doesn't necessarily think of himself, right? Right. But uh, what are you going to do? A U.S. citizen fighting for ISIS surrendered to American-backed forces in Syria this week, according to the Pentagon. The individual who surrendered to Syrian Democratic forces on or around September 12th has since been turned over to the U.S., uh, says the Department of Defense. The U.S. citizen is being legally detained by the Department of Defense uh, personnel as a known enemy combatant. Uh, they say a U.S. official told ABC News that the individual is still overseas as the Department of Justice and the Trump administration determine how to move forward. Hmm. What are we going to do with this guy? It serves as a good reminder that a nation of 330-some million people, some people will be dumb enough to go to Iraq and Syria and try to fight for ISIS, a State Department spokesman said. Yeah, dumb enough. Dumb enough. I don't know if that's... It's back to that. I think that's the see. It used to be the whole discussion was if we were going to call them Islamists or whatever. Now it's should now we just instead of even having that argument, we just call them stupid. Stupid. It really clears things up. Yeah, makes it a lot easier to know what to call a terrorist. Remember that massive Equifax data breach that exposed many of the name security numbers and more than 143 U.S. Citizens, because Equifax. of that. It now appears Equifax had clear and simple instructions on how to avoid it and more than two months to follow them. The credit reporting company announced Thursday that hackers exploited a vulnerability in the Apache Struts web application that they use between May and July. Ars Technica website reports, but the, here's the thing a patch to fix that particular vulnerability had been available for more than two months by that point. Oh boy. All right, so that was like four or five months ago they had this fix. They chose not to fix it. It's unclear why. It says not only was the patch available to Equifax, but there were public reports back in March of hackers exploiting websites that hadn't yet fixed the vulnerability. So they were asleep at the wheel. Yeah, that's kind of what this comes down to. They just didn't fix their security, and 
somebody hack their systems. And now a lot of data that belongs to, what, half of the country? Maybe, because they haven't really clarified. They, I mean, normally you're notified if you have been you know, exposed, because they yeah. know. They have all the data. They can see what was taken and what's gone. Hmm. They also have data from people from England, from most, a lot of Europe has their information with Equifax. They have places in Argentina and oh, places wow. across South America. So we're not even sure who has been exposed to, you know, to the hackers and taken their, you know, information. So good job, Equifax. We don't know who was the hacker either. No. <coughs> Excuse me. She did spend a lot of time hacking, though. <coughs> Hashtag Hillary Hack. Different... I've been practicing her alternate <coughs> not nostril breathing technique. And? <coughs> nothing. Really? Yeah, nothing. Does make me cough more. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why. Interesting. And finally, a Georgia woman who recounted how she received $4,000 in Delta Airlines vouchers when she gave up her seat on an overbooked flight says that she is now considering taking a free trip with her entire family in tow. Good for her. It was like a live auction on the plane, she told ABC News. Of the moment airline staffers began asking for someone to give up their seat, the instructions from the crew was to press your button, your flight attendant alert button, if your flight attendant, um, your flight attendant button, if you were going to take the offers, uh, Tracy Smith said as she boarded her flight. On September 8th, she was going to South Bend, Indiana to watch the University of Georgia play Notre Dame. Uh, with her husband. She first heard the flight was overbooked when she arrived at the gate and says that Delta Airlines began, com- uh, wor- workers began compensations for people to give up their seats. It started at $1,500, then 2000 then it went to $2,200. Wow. It just kept going up. Who's got $2,300? I, I, I looked over at my husband and said, you know, I really think that if they get to four grand, i am going to get off this plane. When they announced 4,000, she reached up without a flinch, pressed the button. She adds that the, there was another guy behind her that reached up super fast, and the, the attendant's like, no, no, she was first. And then the place is like clapping because it was an auction. Wow. Unbelievable. See, yeah. by the way, that is so much more entertaining than dragging a guy off by his ankles. She exactly. exited the plane. She felt like she was on a game show. Everybody was clapping and cheering, Yay. and she said it was a fun, pleasant experience. See, now they took their $4,000, and they could just still go to a pub or something and watch the game on TV. Yeah, except did, did he get off too? No, he went because he had tickets. Yeah, so oh. I, I don't know if you heard, but the, actually the marriage is over. Yeah. <laughs> you don't give up another Dame game ticket for four grand. But think of that. You have... Maybe she didn't have a ticket. That's why she bailed. Yeah, maybe. But She I mean, could have gotten one from a scalper for four grand. So you give up a seat. <laughs> yeah. They give you $4,000 and that's more than enough to cover a whole family trip. I, I would have done it for awesome. $500. I would have done it for $495. <laughs> One dollar. Okay. I would have done it just for them to not tase me or drag me off screaming. Oh, yeah. Don't you think that that is a really – that might be a really smart plan. You put everyone on the plane – I mean, keeping the people that don't have seats yet. Right. And then start the game. And I would, like, have some lights, maybe something that, that you could spin, a spinning wheel. Yeah. To start, the prize will be this much. They, we'll could, start they could play Plinko if they want to. Yes. Yeah, just turn it into the prices right. <laughs> Great. All right, come on down. <laughs> it could become a huge moment. We're overbooked. We need you off the plane. Now every gate agent needs to have auctioneering skills. That's it. What am I going to start my bid? And then all of a sudden, it's exciting. And the first, that all that 30 minutes while you're waiting for people to load... It's going to be more exciting. Yeah, it's entertainment. Because, I mean, normally you just sort of put your headphones on and ignore everyone. Everybody would jump in because they want to get to their seat fast so they can start participating. You're not allowed to participate if you're standing. 
Ah. Get in your seat. Yep. Everyone's a lot more. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll listen to you. They'll follow. They're more obedient to what the- Airplane the, lotto. Nice. This is great. I can't believe nobody took her up or took the flight attendant up on that offer before $4,000. No, it's crazy. It was in their head, like four grand. It's worth But how expensive is that? Like it was Delta in this case, but an airline, if it goes up to $4,000 every time you want someone off the plane. Well, compared to the $1 billion market cap drop of United Airlines, it's a steal. Is it? I think after a while you start looking at it as how can we make this, you know- what, what, what? Let's make our upper limiter like two grand. Just yeah, stop but there. If everybody, see, you can't give the limit. I know because they'll know. And but what'll happen is there's other airlines where it's like, okay, we're gonna start the bid at four hundred ninety nine. Bing. Hmm. That's all it took. One guy right. on one airplane, four ninety nine. I'm there. I'll do that all day long. Hmm. Others might be ten grand. Nice. But the average could be maybe two grand. I think it's an. I think it's an exciting. Good job, Delta Airlines. Can they get like an insurance policy to cover that? Probably. Hmm. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a, like a gambling policy. Yeah. I it's, like it. It's creative. It's innovative. It's uplifting. And it brings back the game show, which, you know, they've been fading. Not as popular. They need the lights, though. You got to have the flashing yeah, lights. Yeah, I like, think. But all you got to do is light up the floor. There's already lights there. You yeah, start yeah. lighting up those floor lights. They never use them. Right. I mean, just in case of emergency. Sure. When the plane's going down, they come mm-hmm. on. Or, Wouldn't yeah. that be cool, too? And then the the oxygen masks fall. If everything just lit up and it was all exciting, I think it would just create a whole new spirit for flying. Huh. Maybe they ought to do that when they're preparing for a crash landing so people won't be as terrified. Mm-hmm. And if they also inserted, like, little words or cue words during the the display of, like, safety display. Right. And then after the safety display, they have one more contest. The music kicks on. And we go back to it and everyone's excited. And then that makes everybody listen. Yeah. What color safety belt did flight attendant Judy use when demonstrating how to properly put on your safety belt? It was red. It was red. I noticed Sorry, you need to push your button, sir. Oh. Okay. Anyone else? No. Yes, sir. It was red. I noticed because uh, Judy uh, was was very attractive. You dirty dog. So in but that situation, right. <laughs> they'll give you like the can. Pardon? Right. So when you're, you ask for a soda, right? Yeah, they yeah. give you like half the can. We'll give you if the you whole win, can. you get the entire can. Mm. I'm telling you, this isn't brain surgery. And the pretzels. We should or start. Or the biscotti. Yeah. Oh, the biscotti. The biscotti are good. Really, the only place you ever get biscotti That's is right. on an airplane. Yeah. yeah. I'll have the biscotti, please. Or at Costco in bulk. Well, yeah, but who really buys that? People that wish they were on airplanes. This person eating the biscotti sounds. It makes it sound really good. Yeah. Really crunchy. It's a crunchy biscotti. Good times. Again, just giving you the ideas. We can't do everything, folks. But we can bring you the ideas. Up next, we're going to be talking about grace without God. What happens when you don't belong to a religion? And how do you still stay connected socially, emotionally? How do you, how do you still feel an understanding of meaning? We've got somebody that's been through it and has um, got some wonderful insight for us straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Over the last decade, there has been a dramatic rise in religious disaffiliation across the United States. And uh, many times you might you might hear this uh, a term that they use nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which is the shorthand term for those who check none of the above when asked about religious affiliation. So to help us understand why this is going on and how, you know, and how people are going through this experience of no longer being affiliated with a religious group and the impact it has on their lives is Catherine Osment, who spent uh, three years observing, researching, and writing about this uh, this situation. Also, um, and, and is now uh, is an award-winning journalist and author of the book Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. Catherine, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is so I, such an important topic, and we've we've had a lot of you know professors on talking about the data about um, this this dramatic rise in disaffiliation with religion. But I wanted I wanted you on because I wanted to learn about the real life impact of this and and what it looks like as you go through it. Um, talk to us about how you how you became interested in wanting to research this and eventually write a book about it. Sure. So I was raised Presbyterian and my husband was raised Jewish. And when we got married, we thought, well, we'll figure out something for the kids, you know, when they come along eventually. Uh, Well, you know, about 10 years after we were married, my oldest child, my son, who was eight at the time, and I were up late one Friday night. And we observed something outside our window that got me really thinking about the decisions and lack of decisions in our lives. Uh, there was a Greek Orthodox church across the street, and late one Friday, uh, a bunch of people started coming down the street holding candles. And my son called me to the window, and we watched as this really elaborate religious ritual unfolded. It was hmm. Good Friday, it turned out, and uh, the priest was there. They had a beautiful chariot draped in flowers with a replica of a baby Jesus inside, and they sang and they prayed. And after they went into the church, my son said, what was that? (laughs) And I I said, well, that was a religious ritual. And he said, well, why don't we do that? And I said, because we're not Greek Orthodox. And he said, well, then what are we? And I was completely stumped. And I blurted out, we're nothing. Because I didn't have a word, really, for what we were. We'd left the traditions we were raised in, but we hadn't come up with a new definition for ourselves. And it was really in that moment that I decided I needed a better answer for him, for my other two children, for my family, and for myself. Um, Words to describe us um, that are better than none, N-O-N-E, or nothing. So that's where my journey really began. It it is interesting where... um... I mean, just that question you asked, what are we? Because you almost don't think of it that way. But a lot of our identity, so much of our identity could be wrapped around these affiliations, these these churches. Yes, and that has traditionally been true. And I think now the time that we're living in, and this is really a recent development, so many people are realizing that those terms don't apply anymore to who they are. And and a lot of people you'll meet in this category of religiously unaffiliated, they'll they'll describe themselves as sort of half in and half out. Many people were raised with religion, but then give it up in this category. And so they'll say, well, I'm a lapsed Catholic, Hmm. or I'm a cultural but not religious Jew. And so they'll come up with a way that they're kind of still identifying with something they had, but kind of trying to say, but I'm a little bit different than that now. And so I think we're in a really interesting 
threshold period for a lot of people across the country. What do you see is the what's the turning point for them? What what makes them what or what drives the decision to to, uh, you know, maybe go more secular or maybe morph it into a, a half in half out title? Yeah, so I think, uh, especially, you know, my generation, born in the late 60s, um, most of the people in the religiously unaffiliated category of my age uh, and older were raised with religion. That was just the way it was forever and ever. And uh, now, as you see the younger people coming along, they're not being raised with something. So they may never have checked the box that said Catholic or Presbyterian or Jewish. Um, but, you know, I, I talk to the scholars as well. I weave in the... the scientific research with with personal stories from people I met. And uh, a lot of people talk about the the effect of the 1960s and the counterculture movement, and then the backlash against that, which was in the form of the moral majority, which turned a lot of people off, Mm. especially um, white Protestants um, started to think, wow, if if Christianity is about all this political stuff, then that's not really what I'm going to church for. And so a lot of people started to disengage from their church because they didn't like the judgment. And and so on surveys, they do say that, you know, that is one thing, the judgment of of people, the way they live their lives, the partners they choose, um, turns people off. And and also some people just gravitate away from the, the religious beliefs. And they say, I, I really can't buy those stories anymore. So those were really the two things I heard a lot as I traveled around. Interesting stuff. Is it um, in the book title, uh, Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular World, That I mean, that really is a lot of what uh, religion comes down to for a lot of people is their identity, their meaning, but their purpose, their belonging. Talk about talk about the impact th- that uh, that you found um, to our meaning, to our sense of who we are. Absolutely. You know, and religion in a way, and it's, it's kind of a colloquialism, but I like to say it's a one-stop shop to so many things. You go to this one place, this one community, and it's an avenue for connecting to your community, to performing rituals and participating with others, but it really gives you a sense of meaning. Um, and I think that that does come through being in connection with others. And so throughout the book, I try to show how non-religious people are attempting to do that. So I looked for people who were kind of further down the road than I was and actually really organizing into secular humanist communities, uh, the so-called atheist churches, things like Sunday Assembly, uh, and, and things that have been around for a while, like ethical culture and humanistic Judaism, and to find places where they really are trying to show that we find meaning in relation to others, um, and we don't have to find it if we no longer believe in God or we're not sure we believe in God. We can find it in the here and now. And so a lot of the groups I talked to were of this sort of secular humanist orientation, where meaning came from doing work in their community and getting together once a week to share their own stories. Is it And is it like dialogically based is it because that's how I've always learned we create the meaning like you're saying is through the interaction through conversation and I'm assuming these groups too are are active in the in the communities they're serving do they do service activities as well that was one of the wonderful things I discovered because when you know after I told my son we're nothing and it immediately felt regretful I started working on this book and I found we lived in Boston at the time And I found uh, the Humanist Hub in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
and immediately could take my kids to park cleanups and meal packing events before Thanksgiving. And, you know, for so many non-religious parents especially, we really crave that. How can we bring up our kids to feel accountable um, within their community, but also feel that they need to be a part of the greater good in some way? And then religion and religious groups really provide that. It's a wonderful thing um, that religions encourage people to do. And so to find that in a humanist community was kind of perfect for us. We've since moved away from there, but I, as I researched the book, I found a number of places where uh, community service is a, a big part of the mission of these, these groups. That's powerful. And yeah, it does get that. It gets that spirit of service and uh, really all the tenets, all the principles of religious organizations as well. We're speaking with Catherine Osmond, uh, who um, is the author of uh, of the book Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. And when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion and and talk also about belonging. One of the things it seems like that if you're not careful in a religious organization or maybe any tight-knit organization is you might exclude people that aren't of your faith, that aren't of your like uh, or ilk, that aren't like you. And uh, we're going to talk about what that might do if, if all of a sudden somebody doesn't believe in church anymore or religious organization. Do they feel like they're on the outside looking in until they can get some of these um, into some of these groups that Catherine is talking about? Interesting insights, I think, for all of us, whether you have a faith belief set or not. Uh, We're still a bunch of people here on earth trying to get along and to be better humans. That's the goal of the show. We'll continue the journey up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. We are on the phone with Catherine Osmond, who's the author of the book Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. As uh, more and more people are becoming disaffiliated with religion and religious organizations, uh, there there's a greater need to to kind of backfill, I guess, uh, more the, the moral um, and, and humanistic needs uh, of belonging, of finding your meaning and having purpose in life. And so uh, Catherine is here talking about her personal experience of going through this with her child and and family and trying to figure out what are they really? I mean, if you're no longer a Mormon or a Catholic or a Jew, if you're not practicing that belief system, what are you? And she's giving us some interesting insights into um, that process. Catherine, thank you again for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This really, it's a its a fascinating idea because it seems like for most of, uh, you know, our history in America, religion played the role of kind of being the moral teacher and teaching the morals and the principles of life. And and it now, as, as people don't turn to religion um, for that, there needs to be other options. And it's interesting, too, how the, those options are appearing. Yeah, I think there are these communities rising up, and they're small, and they're so very new. I interviewed Bob Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone, the famous book about how we're all leaving institutions, so we still go bowling, but we're no longer in leagues. We bowl by ourselves. And I said, are these humanistic groups um, that I'm part of and that are kind of sprouting up around, mostly in cities, but in, in other places, too, 
are they the answer? Are they going to be where this giant sort of growth of religiously unaffiliated people are going to end up? And he said, you know, we won't know for 300 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, because we are really, truly at the outset of this change. So I think time will tell what will happen. I'm hopeful. And, and one thing I saw on my research journey was spaces opening up where people kind of checked their religious identity at the door. And it was really just about being a human being. Mm, yeah. And people could come together. Um, there was one community in Oregon. It's a storytelling community. And about 400 people come quarterly. Um, and eight people from the community are chosen to speak um, on a topic that, you know, opens them up to some vulnerability and to share with people um, something they've gone through in the hope of connecting with one another. And and it's held in a synagogue because it's the biggest place in town, but um, you don't have to be Jewish or Christian or, or even a, a nun, an N-O-N-E, to go. It's really for everyone. And so I'm curious to see if more spaces like that open up for people where they can really come together and try to put aside those things that separate us. Isn't it amazing, too, how there just is this instinct, this in, this intuitive need to um, to belong, to be connected human to human. And so – and I guess that used to be a little easier maybe historically in church settings. One thing that I do worry about too is because church settings historically also were kind of more family-oriented, it seemed like family would check in on family about if they're connected to community – and um, so it, it almost seemed like there there was this overseeing more of everybody making sure they were connected. I don't know if that's true or not, yeah, but but I absolutely. worry that some might fall through the cracks. Absolutely, and you know I think that you know belonging is so important. I write a chapter about it in the book and explore. Even science shows us that our sense of belonging is felt on a cellular level. Huh. So that we recover faster from illness yeah. if we feel a sense of connection with a certain number of people in our lives, um, and that the, the prime benefits of religion um, are from are felt most by those who have a lot of connections in their church. So if you go to church but you sit in the back and you don't talk to a lot of people, you don't really get all that good stuff that is so often written about. So yeah. it really is a vehicle for connection. And in fact, that storytelling community in Oregon was begun um, by a, a Christian minister. He takes religion out of the equation, but he said, you know, I'm really worried because no one in our community seems to know who to call if their child is sick mm. or if they need something from the grocery store and they can't leave the house. And so his whole you know, motive was to get people talking to one another and recognizing we're kind of all in the same boat. We all need each other. And uh, so I think you're right. I think we're in a really dramatically individualizing culture right now. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens to vulnerable people in that situation who do need help? Because for so long, churches were a support for those people. And, and I guess, too, um, like you also see, and I inferred to it, uh, referred to it at the beginning, is uh, sometimes when we carry, when we're, when we're trying to create these connections and this almost this loving, moral, humanistic connection with people, and it's under a banner of a religious group, um, we also might become a little more cliquish and actually keep people away or not be as open to allow people in if they're not of the faith or they're not of the belief system or they have a different view. So, yeah, it seems like if we're not careful too, sometimes we wear our colors and we keep people out of the circle. 
You know, I think that's the, the real conflict these days is that the thing that makes religion so special is also the thing that is driving a lot of people away. Yeah, yeah. And it is that feeling of us versus them. And, and here's what we do. And here are the rituals we perform and the things we believe. And if you're not part of that, you can't come in. And so I think that and yet, you don't want to give all that up because those right. are your beliefs and your practices. And so how do you, how, so I do think these alternate spaces are really an answer. So people keep their faith traditions, but get out in the world and, and communicate and, and come together in congregation with people who don't share those yeah. beliefs and see if there's a, a new place we could meet up. <laughs> and that, and maybe that, like the, the pastor you were talking, or the, yeah, the past, pastor mm-hmm. that you were talking about, Maybe the key is individuals with belief systems can still go to these other meetings and be connected and integrate and still hold their faith tradition and on Sundays go to the other places. I mean, and there's no reason you can't do both. Exactly. You know, and I'm really lucky. I live in this great neighborhood in Chicago now, and it's as religiously and non-religiously diverse as you could imagine, but there's this sort of under... Um, layer of secular humanism, and so the the community has a very strong um, political activism identity, and it, it does a lot of community service. It's just a part of who we are, and yet people are from all walks of life. You know, we're we are completely unaffiliated. My son's closest friend is Mormon, yeah, <laughs> um, and and we're together with them at you know community fundraisers, and so I, I feel like there are these potential places to do this. We just have to keep trying. That's true. And that's beautiful. I mean, really, it's beautiful. Better together, even if separate, um, than mm-hmm. not. What would you say as we wrap it up, Catherine, what would what advice would you give to somebody that is is in the same place you were with your son, not sure not sure where to begin. Maybe they're not in maybe as progressive of a community as you may have been where there aren't as many of these organizations. Where should they begin to still connect to humanity and and um, and and con- and really belong, feel like they belong, if they don't want to be going to a religious organization. Sure. Well, there's a whole list of resources in the back of my book, um, and if people are interested, it, it gives all sorts of websites and information about where you might find a local um, humanist or atheist um, community in your group. Um, but I think that the key advice I would give is. Sometimes secular parents are really worried about proselytizing to their kids because that's part of what they didn't like about religion. And so I would say just take the bull by the horns and say to your kids, you know, I don't believe this, but grandma believes this. And start the conversation. And Mm. just instead of saying, like I did to my son, we're nothing. You know, in hindsight, I could have said, well, I was raised Christian and Papa was raised Jewish. and, And now we're trying to figure out you know, what we are, and you're going to help us figure that out by asking these questions. And, and just really, I think, um, starting to articulate where you stand for yourself and for your family, I think, gives your kids a sense of grounding, and, and they are curious about these things. And they, they don't need a perfect answer, but they just want to hear what you think. Yeah. And, and again, it's not even... It's it doesn't have to be an either or. It can always be an and. Catherine Osment is her name. You can find out more at her website, CatherineOsment.com, and go look up the book Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. Really, you know, some believe and, and have a, a faith belief. I do. I have a strong one, and I notice a lot of the incredible benefits from that, and some don't. 
and they too need to belong and have a sense of meaning and purpose. And why can't we all just do it together, side by side, hand in hand along the way? Uh, you know, again, as we saw in the disasters that we saw in Houston and Florida, it's it's at some point we will all be in this together. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's time to get to our empty news segment uh, with our empty news host. Is that what we're calling you, Our empty news anchor, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Well, thank you. Sure. Um, so you teased this one earlier, and uh, it piqued my interest for sure. There's a problem that's going on in Ireland an Irish member of parliament has an interesting hypothesis for damage to a road in the country. Danny Healy Ray said during an interview with the Irish Times that a dip in one of the country's roads, which was repaired but then reappeared, could be blamed on fairy forts. Pardon? Have you heard of fairy forts before? Never heard of a fairy fort. So the Telegraph explains that per Irish folklore... Interfering with the forts that belong to fairies in the country, said to be the magical gateways to the fairy world, results in a curse. (gasps) There are numerous fairy forts in that area, Healy Ray said. I know that they are linked. Anyone that tampered with them back over the years paid a high price and had bad luck. The parliament member was told by the county council's road department several years ago that, no, it wasn't fairies, but an underlying subsoil (laughs) geotechnical problem causing the issues. How does he know it's not a fairy fort? I choose to believe it was the fairies. So the fairy fort, I guess, is a a gateway to other fairy worlds. Yes. Yeah. And, um, And apparently you can also have a fairy fort curse. Which makes it so if you if you do something you shouldn't do, then that will always keep causing problems in that area. Yeah. Thus, yeah, a, a hole in the road. We've got one more involving roads. Okay. This one might be a little scary for you, though. No. Just wanted to warn you. Okay. Police say thieves have stolen an SUV and attached U-Haul trailer with a casket inside. What? Outside an Albuquerque motel. Albuquerque police say the heist occurred early Monday at a residence inn, and the casket was later found not too far from the site it was taken. Authorities say the casket contained the body of the victim's father-in-law. The U-Haul was located after police searched for a black 2005 Chevy Trailblazer SUV with Oklahoma license plates. Police said the deceased man's daughter and her husband were on their way from Oklahoma to Kirtland, New Mexico to bury him. Wow. So you can just get a U-Haul, put the body in it, and drive to another state. Apparently. But it does... But how did the casket make it that far away from the residence inn when the U-Haul was not with it? Um, you know, maybe the, the guy had the jitters. Maybe he just was shaking a little <laughs> Jittered bit. Jittered his way over there in the Jittered casket. Jittered his way over there. I mean, sometimes the body, you know, does a little settling, you know, has a little nervous response here and there. So maybe he just nervously, you know, shook it. I don't know. That scared me, though. I'm terrified. Let's change the subject and maybe get to a, a more positive news. Who better to help us? 
than McKenna Baus. Baus is in the house with one of our mind benders. McKenna is one of our great producers here on the show. Today, she she what she always does is comes in, gives us new information, new research to blow our minds. Today, we're talking dogs, and yes, they do apparently like us a lot. Yeah, thank goodness. Yes. What are we learning? So there's been some research going on where we found ways to finally get dogs to sit still in an MRI machine. How do you do that? A lot of training. Yeah. A lot sit. of training. Yeah. Um, and starting to doing some brain scans. And there's been a lot of, you know, sort of questioning out there in the past. You know, do they use their brains the same way right. that we do? And what are their motivations in sticking around with us and being man's best friend? Because people think they, the only reason the dog is so into us is because we give them treats, we feed them, we brush their hair. It's a cushy setup. Why it's a would way you leave? Cushy setup. But yeah. now you're finding out because somehow they can get a dog to sit still in an MRI machine, mm-hmm. which it blows my mind because I can't even sit still in an MRI machine. Yeah, it's a lot of training similar to what they've done to train military dogs to yeah. be like comfortable in helicopters. Okay, yeah, and you don't want them running around. <laughs> It'd be bad. That's the fastest way to lose the dog. Exactly. So what, did they, what are they seeing? What are they finding out in the MRI data? So they've been looking at different regions of the brain and how it responds to different stimuli. And in the test, some of the time they'd give do- a, a hot dog. Oh, yeah. Um, and sometimes they'd give the dog praise and affection. Right. And for the vast majority of the dogs, they responded to food and praise, you know, pretty equally that those okay. are equally important. Yeah. But 20% of the dogs it had like much stronger reactions to praise over food. So it's at least they love us as much as food and good number of them love us more than food. That's amazing. So us, just us telling them they're great. You're a good dog. You're a good dog. Good boy, good boy. They love that just as much or more actually than a a little bite of the hot dog. Yeah. So good, you know, good news if you have an obese dog like my family does. Yeah. By the way, my dog died of heart disease. Actually, my dog was killed by my mother. My mom hired a hitman, and I know she's listening. She hired a hit person. I don't know who it was to euthanize my dog. But Ooh. he also had heart disease because I fed him peanut butter every day of his life. Yeah, that might be on you then. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of my bad. But that – so dogs do love their owners, and if the owners are really verbally you know, positive with the dog, the dog loves that even more. Did they find anything out about cats? Uh, I do not have any data yeah. on cats. I have once upon a time read a study that they – look at us as more as just really big other cats. Really? So think, you know, we're just as good as the next guy so in their eyes. So you're saying it is okay then for Jeff to lick his cat clean? I'm going to advise against that. I feel like there's probably some kind of health issue there. It's a good there. point. It's a good point. Um, any other data that we need to know just as a dog owner, an animal owner? Um, well, just some interesting other implications of the study. They're using it to help identify... Um, early on, what dogs are going to be best suited to service service dogs okay. by doing scans ahead of time? Because right now, we spend a lot of time and some thousands of dollars training these dogs, right. and they don't. Yeah, what if end they don't have the aptitude? Having the aptitude, and so now this is helping streamline that process. Um, and additionally, they're finding that by being able to look and see how dogs' brains are working using some of that knowledge to rehabilitate shelter dogs with oh, aggression wow. issues. How cool. Yeah. That's a lot of money yep. we're spending on the dog, which is great. I mean, by the way, and all the learning. 
And so now when you say, good boy, good boy, that really is validating. It really is. They need love just like we do. McKenna Baus, Baus in the house. Thanks, McKenna. For bending our mind. It's time now to go to our, uh, our, to go to screen cleaning. Jeff Liam Simpson in about one minute from now is going to take over the Matt Townsend Show, and now lead us through screen cleaning, launching us into the weekend, Jeff. Okay, now I want to preface this by saying it's never going to get in the gutter. The conversation's never going to go where you think maybe it would go. Good. We're talking male and female fantasies in film. Okay. So Inside the film, inside the movie. What do men and women fantasize about, and how is that portrayed in film? Wow, this so is So their a fantasies very... come to life on the screen. And this is this is in screen cleaning. And we're not talking like Lord of the Rings, very fantastical things, okay. but just, you know, things that we would love to see happen. Wow. Okay. Like, for instance, uh, I would love to never, ever have to do my lawn again. Oh, that's good life right there. I can't think of a movie that has that in there, but... Uh, they should from now on. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. We're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. Okay, that's straight ahead. Screen cleaning. It's the final hour of the week on the Matt Townsend Show with Jeff Liam Simpson at the helm. Continue with us, folks. That's it for me. I'll be back next Monday helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Have a great weekend. Jeff, Jeff, hey Jeff, wake up, we got a show to do, let's go. Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh, whoa. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. You know, we've got these early hours. I was, mm-hmm. I yeah. was just, uh, oh, I was, having an am- I was just having an amazing dream. I loved it. I know. And you woke me up. I know. So, wait a minute. You know? How yep. could, can you read my thoughts or something? Actually, Yes. Yeah, right. Come on, Cole. All right, okay. Well, then what was I dreaming about? You dreamed that you arrived home to discover that your home had been broken into, but it was also left sparkly clean. In fact, I think it was your dream that went something like this. Ever wake up to find all your prized possessions have been stolen, but that your home has been left spick and span? Chances are you've been a victim of the Crook Cleaners. Like any good Boy Scout, the Crook Cleaners believe in leaving a place cleaner than when they found it. And that includes the homes they rob. In partnership with the Crook Closet, the only store where criminals can find the outfits they need to feel more confident on the job, the Crook Cleaners work hard to ensure your most traumatizing experience is also your most pleasant one. Just listen to some of our reviews on Yelp, where we have a surprisingly high 3.2 star rating. T.O.D. in Tulsa writes, I woke up to find my TV was gone, but so was the ring in the bathtub. Jackie O. writes, My current cleaners charge an arm and a leg and do such a poor job. I felt like I was already being robbed, so it's all good. Wayne Newton Love You writes, Please, can I have my TV back? 
Also, can I get the name of the cleanser you used on the kitchen counter? It's so sparkly clean. And Mad Dog 472318 writes, I hope these guys burn for all eternity. There will be a special place in purgatory just for them. However, they will also hold a special place in my heart. And the best part? No appointments necessary. It's like the old saying goes, don't call us, we'll call on you. And you don't even have to be home. In fact, we prefer it that way. The Crook Cleaners. We'll take you to the cleaners, and then we'll leave your home cleaner. Whoa, that was amazing. That is my fantasy right there. I can't believe you knew that, Cole. So, obviously not the breaking in part. I would prefer that not happen. But, uh, you know, somebody else doing all of the cleaning for me. If I never had to do my lawn again, that would be amazing. Uh, Now, I should say, because my wife is listening, and also because it's the truth, my wife actually does all the cleaning at our house. Sorry, sweetie. And I, I probably don't recognize you enough for it. And... She doesn't steal from me. So my wife, win, win. you could say, is she's my dream come true. So sweet. Anyway, welcome to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Jeff Simpson, joined here by Cole Wissinger. As usual. As usual, we're going to have a great show here today. What we do each and every week is we highlight the very best in entertainment uh, because, you know... There's a lot out there that's not good, but there's also a, a lot that's out there that is good. And sometimes you just have to look a little deeper for it, and we're going to help you find it. And in fact, we like to start out each show by giving you the very best in entertainment news from over the week. And we're going to start out with our best replacement director news. Cole, I'm sure you heard about this one. Oh, yes. This is the second Star Wars film director to be fired from their job. In just a couple months, yep. Yeah. And if we're honest with ourselves, this one probably came as a result of Colin Trevorrow's most recent film, The Book of Henry, being such a critical and box office flop that maybe uh, the execs at Disney took another look at him and thought, maybe we don't want to invest or and put our money behind this guy. And maybe just not as large of a film that he was on to do. Right. How, but, you know, he was very successful with Jurassic World, broke all sorts of box office records. So because he does it had have Jurassic as the first word of it. Right. You know, they probably could have gotten anybody to direct that. But they know yeah. that he can helm a a very large film. So it's a little surprising that just because he has a flop, I, I wonder if this film had come out later or not at all, if he would still have this job. It's a good question. Fun to speculate, right? But the replacement is, you've been uh, burying your lead there, Jeff. (laughs) The replacement is the director of episode seven, J.J. Abrams. Woo. He's got got the bookends of that uh, other trilogy. The question arises now, are you more excited for J.J. Abrams taking over Star Wars 9 or Ron Howard taking over Star Wars 3.85 or whatever they want to call the Han Solo? J.J. Abrams for sure. Okay. I I enjoyed both of the Star Trek films that he directed. Mm -hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed Star Wars Episode Seven. I know a lot of people 
uh, did not. It made a ton of money, but you have a lot of people that complain about it being pretty much the same exact plot as episode four. But better. And I'll grant you that. <laughs> it's, it was very similar in plot, but it was just so much fun. Absolutely. And pretty much anything that I've seen that J.J. Abrams has touched has just been a ton of fun. So I'm all in for that. Absolutely. Me too. Um, so we're excited about that. The best casting news. This is really interesting, but not too much of a stretch when you think about it. There's a new Queen biopic that's coming out called Bohemian Rhapsody. And there was a time when Sasha Baron Cohen of Borat fame <laughs> was uh, tied to this film. He was yeah, going to play Freddie Mercury. But uh, they, uh, Queen and um, Sasha Baron Cohen kind of went separate ways because they realized they just didn't have the same vision for this. I think he wanted to make it more of a comedy. And no. Queen wanted to make it more about uh, the success of the band after, like what the band did after Freddie Mercury passed away. And Sasha Baron Cohen's argument, which I think is very valid, like nobody wants to see a film without the main band leader in it. You know, right. So they they parted ways and they cast instead uh, Rami Malek mm-hmm. from, uh, from Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot on the USA. <clears throat> so that should be interesting. But I, I have no idea what Mike Myers role will be in this film. But because of his role in Wayne's World, it's really not that much of a stretch that he's going to be in this film. In fact, I think we have a clip of that very scene that I'm referring to. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Galileo. 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 Galileo, big Interesting fact. I love that scene, by the way. I love the movie, too. Interesting uh, fact about that movie and that song is Bohemian Rhapsody was a big hit in the UK, but not as much in the United States. And when this film came out, like 15 years later or so, it catapulted the song all the way up to number two on the charts, which is really impressive for to a bring song that old. To yeah. bring it back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So a scene with them lip syncing in a car uh, just took the – I mean the sales took off because of it, which is interesting because now lip syncing in a car has been made famous or has been brought back to being famous by James Corden on his late show. Oh, yes. So Carpool uh, karaoke. Yes, we're excited about that. And then one last thing, Cole and I were just talking during the break how really there's not a whole lot to see in the movie theaters right now. And in fact, every major release that's out this weekend is R-rated, so obviously we're not going to talk about those on this show. Um, but we're going to give you the best weekend news. We're going we're gonna to look at the positive side of this. The fact that there are no new major non-R-rated movie releases is a good thing. It means that you need to step outside of your uh, creative or non-creative bubble and get a little creative. Stay at home, play some games. You could go out to eat. And uh, 
We're going to give you a couple of other ideas later on in the show when we do our panning for good segment. But yeah, it's a good thing. There are other things that you can do. Read a book, watch a movie at home, watch the Dodgers win this weekend, hopefully. Fingers crossed. We'll see. Anyway, when we come back, we are going to go to one of our favorite segments, Jolly Good Shows. For the next, this month's pick of Jolly Good Shows, you're not going to want to miss it. Coming up on uh, Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for Close Encounters of the Third Kind on BYU Radio. Yes, this is a review for a film that is 40 years old, but that's because it is back in theaters. And there's a reason this film is back in theaters for its 40th anniversary. It's just that good. I remember going to this film and being dropped off with my friends at a theater and being engulfed in a story that asked questions and made me think about the world around me. After viewing it again 40 years later, I still had the same reaction. Steven Spielberg, Richard Dreyfuss, Terry Garr, Melinda Dillon, and the score by John Williams all combined to make this film the masterpiece it is. This is the story of an Indiana power worker who meets up with a UFO and becomes entranced by what he feels is drawing him to learn more about the encounter. His search envelops his life and crumbles his marriage and family, so much so he builds an inexplicable model of Devil's Tower in his living room. This is an amazing film visually. The chance to see it on a big screen is the real reason to go back and see it again. Of course, if you haven't ever seen it, get a ticket. The large-scale shots in the film are meant to be seen on a big screen, and they do not disappoint. The storytelling is moving, and the characters feel like your friends next door. Spielberg attributes this to the fact that he felt like all the actors were playing themselves in the film. Close Encounters of the Third Kind is rated PG, and there are a few profanities. A woman is seen in her robe and underwear, and there are some suspenseful scenes which may be too much for some younger viewers. This is a treasure of a film, and it gets an A grade from me. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Screen Cleaning proudly presents Jolly Good Shows, classic films that have stood the test of time and are now being inducted into Jeffrey Simpson's prestigious video library. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. That, of course, is from Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. An excerpt from the Bard's Sonnet 18. Who among us has not attempted to give voice to the pinings of the heart? This month's selection for jolly good shows, Wayne's World, centers on Wayne Campbell, a love-struck slacker who is in who in this scene, with the help of his faithful friend Garth Algar, attempts the seemingly impossible task of describing the beauty of Wayne's girlfriend using the most eloquent of words. She's a fox. In France, she would be called La Renard, and she would be hunted with only her cunning to protect her. She's a babe. She's a robo-babe. In Latin, she would be called Babia Majora. If she were a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. 
Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. Neither did I. I was just asking. Mm. Poetry. Sheer poetry. Good show, old man. Jolly good show. We shall return in a month's time to reveal our next inductee into the archives of Jolly Good Shows. That song, of course, means we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, and we're going to be covering a topic that actually it was Rod's idea, and I'm super excited because we all go to the movies to escape, to uh, whether that's from your your children or from your problems or maybe uh, your job. We, we all go to the movies to escape, and we all have certain dreams and fantasies that in many ways will never be realized or may not be realized. And so maybe we like to see them fulfilled on the screen. And before we get into this topic, I want to just uh, make a disclaimer, not really a disclaimer. I just want to preface this topic by saying, uh, I know we're going to be speaking about fantasies in films. It's never going to get into the gutter. So you never have to worry about that on screen cleaning. Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hey, hello, Jeff. You know what? I'm we're going to have to visit that job idea one day. I'm thinking about <laughs> Dolly Parton in nine to five. We're that's we're going to put that one on the list for later. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't even think about this when we were compiling yeah. this list. So yes, how many of us want to fantasize that we're telling our boss what's in our mind? Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming up with this idea. I'm really excited to talk about it, and I, I think the idea kind of sparked from a a recent major motion picture release called Home Again, which I have not seen, starring Reese Witherspoon. Do you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis of this film and, and why it maybe uh, it shows what the fantasies of a lot of women may be and, and how it's played out on film? Sure. Well, Reese Witherspoon is mentioned as starring in this film, and she plays a, a woman who has just turned 40 having a difficult time with hitting that milestone. Uh, she lives in a palatial home in Hollywood with her two girls. She is separated from her husband, who is pursuing a music-producing career, and he's living in New York. So what does she do for her birthday? She goes with her girlfriends out to the bar. And there she meets three young men who are wannabe filmmakers, winds up bringing them home with her. Uh, there's a little sexual moment with one of them, just a warning, heads up there for her parents. Um, but then her mother, who comes over to visit the next morning and bring the children back, she was babysitting them, she invites these three men to move into her daughter's pool home in the backyard. Makes and, total sense. <laughs> yeah, and within 24 hours of script time, if you know what I mean, 
they're babysitting her two daughters. They're driving them to, I can't remember, music lessons or whatever it is. I'm thinking, reality, people, really, you met these three young guys in a bar, and now they're taking care of your little girls. Like, right. Uh -uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, it's the fantasy thing that's going on here. Um, and we've had this with men for decades where, you know, you'll have the male protagonist and there's all these beautiful women that are fawning over him. Well, this is the reverse of that. This is the female protagonist with these young men who are fawning over her. Yeah, as far as the men go, just, you know, pick any James Bond film and mm -hmm. <laughs> it describes perfectly what you just said. So yes. um, you mentioned another film that's kind of similar to this uh, in theme, which is Mamma Mia, where you have Meryl Streep, who has these uh, three men as well, uh, fawning after her. And, and each one is, we're not quite sure which one is the father of her daughter. I have not seen Mamma Mia. Yeah, well, Mamma Mia, I must admit, okay, we gave it a C grade, not recommended for family viewing, but I got to admit, it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me, quite a fun movie. Uh, Meryl Streep, of course, off the charts in her performance. But once again, yes, this is one of those films of the female fantasy where she can't figure out or they, they aren't revealing which of these three men that she's had relationships with in her life are really the father of her daughter who is about to get married. And so, again, it's this idea of you've got these three handsome aging men in the, in the case of Mamma Mia, but still, um, you know, that she's been able to have relationships with all three of them. And you really spend, it, it really is there so that for people who are in the audience, women in the audience watching this movie, they're thinking, wow, which one would I want to have to be the father of my daughter? You know, it's kind of this catalog thing of pick, you know, the dating game contestant one, two or three. Yeah. Okay. So now that we have that female fantasy of multiple men in your life out of the way, let's get to, <laughs> to one that's maybe a little more wholesome and uplifting. So this one's a, a recent pick, Wonder Woman, which is very timely in my opinion because uh, right now women are are very uh, empowered in the media as maybe they should be, you know, not I should take out the maybe. Um, and in a time where they feel like, you know, their voices are not heard, I think this is a good message. And the the fantasy that is at play here is to have, of course, these superpowers that Wonder Woman has and to, you know, to be taken seriously and to be equals with men. I just saw this the other day and I was I was kind of giddy because I as I was watching it, I I think I had this feeling of, wow, DC finally figured out how to make a Marvel film because I mm -hmm. felt while while I was watching it like it was a Marvel film. But uh, I, I really appreciate the message of the film. And it's fun to see this fantasy of women and probably a lot of kids and men alike to have these superpowers played out on screen in this way. And what I really enjoyed about Wonder Woman is she still realizes the importance of and needs men in her life. And there's a great um, evenness of, of roles there with Chris Pine playing the male protagonist, if you will. And uh, yeah, that part of it I really enjoyed. The other thing I liked is she steps into World War One just like my wife would step into my family room with our, in our family room with our young children. And she'd put her foot down and say, that's it. Everybody go to their <laughs> corner. And that's kind of the role she plays in here, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. So I, I mentioned how 
how, you know, when you ask a child what they want to be when they grow up, whether it's a, a firefighter or a police officer, a lot of a lot of them will want to be superheroes as well. And for some kids in film, though, all they really want to be is older. They kind of feel like, OK, once I get older, I won't have to deal with all of these problems that I'm experiencing now as a kid or people won't won't bully me. And that is kind of the premise of this film, 13 Going on 30, which I have not seen, as well as the film Big, which I have seen. Have you seen 13 Going on 30? I have seen 13 Going on 30. There's some things I really enjoy about this movie. Now, parents, a heads up. There's some sexual content and some profanity in this film, which is really unfortunate because overall, I think it has a very good message um, for adults and for children. And it's basically don't wish your life away. Enjoy your childhood. Enjoy your adulthood. But um, this young girl, she wishes at a birthday party that that she could be older. And so she wakes up. She's 13 and she wakes up 30 and she's the editor of this fashion magazine and quite a popular woman. But she learns that sometimes that's not everything you need in life. Mark Ruffalo plays an incredible uh, role model uh, as far as what a really good friend is in this movie as well. So, Rod, I am actually very surprised you've never seen the film Big. I haven't. I know. You know, I think I may have saw part of it on an airplane once, but I've never reviewed it officially, and it's kind of wiped from my memory. Okay, so this is big, starring Tom Hanks in an Oscar-nominated mm-hmm. performance, if you can yes. believe it. And he—it's it's a kind of a similar setup. He goes to this fair. He can't get on a certain ride because he's not tall enough. The girl that he's crushing on, he, he can't get her to take him seriously because he's not older. So he goes to this fortune-telling uh, game, and he puts in a quarter, and he makes a wish to be bigger. And he wakes up the next morning, and voila, he's bigger, and he's Tom Hanks. And so it's so much fun to see Tom Hanks play this man-child and actually succeed in business. He gets this great job. Uh, I think he's he's either creating to- I think he's creating toys. So who mm-hmm. who among us would not love to have a job where we get paid to make toys and goof off and play all day? Um, just such a fun film, and uh, it has the infamous or uh, the famous, I should say, scene with Robert uh, Loggia where he and Tom Hanks are playing the the life size piano where they're dancing on it and playing Heart and Soul. Uh. Definitely just a charming film to check out. And it's interesting how how kids have that mentality of, oh, all of my problems will go away. If I was just bigger, if I was just older, I wouldn't have these problems. And yet there's another film uh, that we won't we don't need to talk about. I don't know that we have time for it, but it's called 17 Again, where it's basically a reverse mm-hmm. of these films where you have Matthew Perry, who has the exact opposite mindset of, oh, if I was just younger, if I was just uh, back in high school where I was at the prime of my life, all of these problems that I'm having would just go away. And uh, it's interesting how, as these characters discover later on in these films, it doesn't always play out that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that those movies, it, it again, how many times have we said this? It, it's so unfortunate that some of these films have content issues in them because it, these are really good messages to enjoy the moment that we're in and quit wishing that we were younger, quit wishing that we were older, just embrace where you are. 
Exactly. So we covered uh, women's fant- or the woman's fantasy in film as well as kids' fantasies in film. And uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about men's fantasies in film. And I promise it's not going to go where you think it might go when we return here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, where we're talking about our deepest desires and dreams and fantasies played out on film. And we're speaking with Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, who actually came up with the idea for this topic. Rod, welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. So really quickly, before we get on to the male fantasy in film... I wanted to mention one film that we neglected to mention in the last segment, which goes along very well with your uh, what you said about a film having a, a great message, but just executed kind of in a crude manner. And that is the film Liar, Liar, which mm-hmm. has one of the sweetest messages you'll ever see in a movie. And it's such a strange film because... It is such a heartwarming, uplifting film, but it is just full of very crude sequences and dialogue. It's a Jim Carrey movie, so that's not too surprising. But you have this child whose father uh, who's, uh, is divorced from his mother, and his father just continues to disappoint him again and again. And so on his birthday, he makes his wish that his father could not tell a lie for 24 hours. I'm not sure why he chose that uh, 24-hour time period, but it really is just a, a, a very sweet message. And there are a lot of kids out there who I'm sure would love to escape in uh, with a movie or a video game or a book to get away from the problems that they're having at home. And so many children would love for their parents to reconcile their relationship and, uh, yeah, I love the message, but, I did, again, it's just such a weird film because you have two extremes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You really do. And uh, it it really, I, once again, you know, it is really difficult with some of these films that we're talking about, even in this segment and some of the ones we're going to be talking about here with the men's fantasies where they have positive messages. But, yeah, it's that content issue that's always a, an overriding concern that you'll have to be careful about. So speaking of men's fantasies in film, uh, you mentioned Home Again and Mamma Mia, where the women had several men in their life and their lives. And uh, this next film is called The Stepford Wives. And we're going to be talking about the original Stepford Wives, uh, which is based on the, the novel by Ira Levin. And in this film... The protagonist and her family move to this community where everything just seems a little too perfect. And whenever that's the case, it's usually the setup for a horror film, right? And I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I would call this a horror film because the the scares are very subtle. It's a very subtle movie. But uh, this woman uh, starts to discover things about the women in the community. And basically, we come to learn that... The men in the community have figured out a way to make perfect versions of their wives, women that are very subservient, who will do all the cooking and the cleaning and are always dressed to the nines. 
And this is probably a movie that would upset so many women today. Uh, But I actually enjoy this film as a suspense film. Obviously, I, I don't buy into this idea that women should be subservient and that they should be perfect. But uh, yeah, it's called The Stepford Wives. Rod, have you seen this film? You know, you've got me on this one because I've seen the newer one that came out in, oh, what was it? I think 2004. Which and, is a comedy. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, and it's more of a comedy. And it actually had some positive things to say. Unfortunately, we it's right on the line. We gave it a C+. Plus. Um, but it did have some positive things to say about the downside of of desiring this. And and from what I understand, the original, which, you know what, Jeff, I think I may have watched this years ago when I was working in a television station. But um, yeah, it's the same sort of idea. Doesn't the older one you like, it still has that same message in it, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So this next film I want to talk about is, I think, a fantasy of tired Husbands and Fathers, and Mm -hmm. it's from Shrek Forever After. Have you seen Shrek Forever After, Rod? I have. This was one of my favorite Shrek movies, even though I think it really bombed at the box office, if I remember correctly, and a lot of people were disappointed because Shrek kind of lost his edge in this movie. From a family perspective, I really appreciated the fact that Shrek lost his edge. And uh, basically, this is the Shrek version of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, There's even some quotes from the movie in there where Shrek suddenly comes to this parallel universe because he's getting older and his life just isn't, you know, happy anymore. And so Rumpelstiltskin trades him uh, one day if he'll exchange one day from his meaningless childhood, one meaningless day from his childhood. And uh, and the day Rumpelstiltskin, being the conniving guy, decides to obliterate is the day of his birth. So Shrek is no longer alive, and so he sees the world without him. As I say, it's a wonderful life. And it really does. It's got some very positive things going for it, and very accessible for family viewing as well, which is something we really enjoyed. Yeah, and I, again... Who among us hasn't fantasized about just, you know, being able to have a day where you can do whatever you want, Mm -hmm. whether you're male or female, you know, because I'm sure that the women fantasize about this as well, and rightly so, um, just with all the things that that they have to put up with at home and, and at their jobs, too, I'm sure. So the next film I want to talk about is, again, another one of those films, and I feel like this whole list has been like this, that I wouldn't necessarily recommend based on some of the subject matter. It is PG-13. It's called What Women Want. And we teased this a little bit earlier on the show at where this idea where wouldn't it be great, especially if you were in the dating world, how great would it be if you knew what a woman was thinking. And I know that's mm-hmm. a frustration of so many men just don't, you know, don't play all these games. Just tell me exactly what you're thinking or tell me what you want and I'll do that, you know. So it's Mel Gibson who by a, a uh, some strange accident, I think he's electrocuted. He wakes up from conscious or from being unconscious and discovers he can hear or he can read women's thoughts, which, you know, Sets off a whole string of comedic events. Uh, I, w- I actually wasn't crazy about this film, but it has a very interesting premise, and I'm sure a lot of men would love to know exactly what women are thinking. 
You know, I, I'm totally with you on this one too, Jeff. And as you say, we sound like we're repeating ourselves with many of these films. The premises are wonderful. And this one, I really appreciate. Um, currently, I am serving in the leadership of a church congregation that are all young, single adults. And we're continually communicating <laughs> to the guys. Well, this is how the women are thinking. We're communicating to the women. This is what the men are thinking. And and uh, this movie, you know, it's probably a good thing we don't know what each other is thinking, but the the premise is a really creative idea that I really enjoyed that part of it. So, Rod, we've got one more film here, and I want to let you uh, set up the synopsis for this. But as I mentioned when we first started talking about this, we go to the movies because we want to escape. And I often have felt, oh, my goodness, it would have been so much fun to grow up in the 50s and 60s and, you know, cruise down the street in a, in a nice car and, and go to all the diners with the roller skating waitresses. And the music of that time was just so much fun. How great would it have been to live in that time? But uh, this film, I feel like, has a an amazing message that we should all uh, we should all see this film and take this message away and i'm going to let you set it up it is called midnight in paris well, this is a Woody Allen movie, and Woody Allen, if you've watched enough of his movies, he is the king of fantasy. Some people may not really see that on the surface, but virtually every movie he makes, you can tell he is fantasizing about something in his own life. And in this case, it's about going back to the 1920s. Owen Wilson plays this scriptwriter who believes that life could have been so much better if he lived at a different time, and he loves this particular period. And so he ends up in Paris— and he's on vacation with his fiance and her parents. And he discovers he's on the street corner and this magical thing happens. This, this, old, um, this old carriage comes and picks him up. And he's transported into the, into the 1920s where he meets people like Cole Porter and F. Scott Fitzgerald and has coffee with Ernest Hemingway. It's a really beautifully done creative movie. Um, that once again looks at us fantasizing, for instance, about the good old days and how, you know, things were so much better back in a certain time period. Does a very effective job. The good news is, you know, I think kids would be bored to tears with this movie. But you <laughs> yeah. know what? We gave it a B. It's not too bad for, for um, content concerns. So, you know, you could watch this one with your teens. Which seems rare for a Woody Allen film, by the way. It is rare for a Woody Allen film. Yeah, yes. I love I love this message of you know what, sure, things may have may have been great back then, but in the twenties they had their own set of problems too, and uh, somebody in the twenties maybe fantasized about living in a different time period of their own, you know. So yes. again, we just need to be content with where we're at, and there you know there are certain dreams and fantasies that we can make uh, into realities. But again, I, I think the takeaway from this conversation, Rod, is that we need to be in a place where we can just be content with who we are and our life circumstances and find a way to be happy instead of I, yeah go I, ahead go ahead Ryan. i th i think that's what most of most of these fantasy movies it, it's interesting that is the repeating message over and over is that aren't you glad you couldn't have gone through this you know and and that type of thing well, Rod, we really appreciate your time here on Screen Cleaning, and thanks for coming up with the idea. This has been a really interesting conversation that we've had. We'll have to have you back next week when when uh, Ninjo or uh, Lego Ninjago comes out. We're excited about that. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I am too. Finally, a family film after about a month. So it'll be good. yes, finally. Well, we're gonna we're gonna take a break. When we return, we're gonna be speaking with a couple of uh, of other guys that are having fantasies about a certain college football team winning a game this weekend. Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we just uh, finished speaking with Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews about fantasy in films. And I know that these next two gentlemen are fantasizing about a BYU win this weekend. And I, of course, am talking about Jerem Jordan and Brian Logan from BYU Sports Nation. If they don't win, it's a shame. Wrong sport, but great song that fits. You're playing it. Oh, my goodness. So, are you just on pins and needles, or are you just... Uh, is is it still a miracle scenario that they'll win, or do you feel like they've got a sporting chance? BYU? Tomorrow? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well... Go ahead, Jaren, take it. If BYU, yeah, okay, I said this to Brian Logan. Listen, BYU's going to improve its offense. I'm not sure this is the game that happens, but maybe. Okay. Uh, Tanner Mangum's status is in question. Had his ankle rolled up on on the final offense play against Utah. Ula Tolutau's the guy at running back. How many carries does he get? He's a true freshman. Like, is Bo Hodge going to play at quarterback? There's some unanswered questions. Wisconsin is legit. Top 10. Has rolled over its two inferior opponents. They're always really tough in the trenches. I, so what's the positive? He's a sixteen and a half point dog. It's not looking good for Woo! me. What's the, what? what's, the, what's the positive spin you can put on this, though? Why does there have to be a positive? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why can't we just talk about the facts? Well, I mean, that's, we, that's kinda... the facts are BYU's offense is putting up 11 points a game. Okay. That ain't being a lot of t- like BYU, Portland State was hanging with BYU. There's certain situations just in life that you know you get like this this oxymoron. I think you trying to get a positive out of this is kind of like that. What? No, no, you <laughs> could you could no, say no, I see what you're trying to do, but like I, I try and be fair to the situation. And the situation is Wisconsin's a top ten team. BYU's offense has some question marks with its health. Even if BYU's healthy, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a tough game for this, BYU. This is a great opportunity for families to come together, enjoy some nachos and some cougar tails, and just have a real quality outing together. Go. Oh, yeah. I mean, we put yeah. it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. If you yeah. don't care about the result on yeah. the field. You take, if you, yeah. You, take a, take, <laughs> you talk about the off-the-field yeah. things. Yeah. Oh. Listen, I'm, listen. listen. If, if BYU somehow won this game, this would be one of the most incredible victories in the history of BYU football, which, by the way, this is the 1,000th. BYU football game. Wow. See, there's another positive spin you can put on this. That's not positive. That's neutral. <laughs> it's just a yeah, fact. It's, a fact. <laughs> it's not negative or positive. It's yeah, just it's, a fact. It's kind of great. Yeah. Hey, you know what else is a, a fact? And it's also positive. The Cleveland Indians have won 22 games in a row. Amazing, right? That's awesome. It is so See, amazing. I'm, now they're going to get their own Moneyball movie. You know, as much as I love the Dodgers, and you know I do— 
the Cleveland Indians, this is a team that if they went on to win the World Series, I would not, there would be no sour grapes because last year when the Cleveland Indians played the Cubs, I thought this is the best scenario you could have for a World Series. Two teams that haven't won in over a hundred years. It really doesn't matter if one of the, I mean, whatever team wins, it's a good outcome. It's compelling. And I mean, once college football starts, Baseball kind of takes a back seat for the majority of the audience Boom. in the U.S. Ball is life until the playoffs, and it's like, oh, okay, sweet. We there have- is no, there is no off-season, Jerem. That's not true. I've, you've only been <laughs> I was of this like no days off, six a.m. up at the gym, and then the then there's like a tweet from a tropical paradise. From it's like, yes. now wait a minute. No, there's definitely days off. I mean, that's that's uh, you know our, Bill, our heavenly father gave us a formula for success. Yeah, he took it. Have to have rest. So, Bill Bel- but, but there is no off season though. It's there football twenty four seven. You know, Bill Belichick <laughs> at the Patriots parade after they won the Super Bowl started chanting, "No days off." <laughs> to a group of people who had taken a day off to see the parade. Wow. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, the Dodgers took about two weeks off. Yeah, they've been taking it easy, huh? Still have the best record in the, in the they league. They do, maybe. and they've won two in a row, which seems like a new record for them. <laughs> anyway, I know you're not talking about the Dodgers on your show. When, uh, when Sports Nation comes up here in about six and a half minutes, what are you going to be talking about? Brian, tell the people what. We will be discussing. Um, we're just going to talk about uh, what's acceptable for this loss that BYU is going to have. Wait, what? <laughs> we're not saying that. We're just saying it's going to be an uphill battle. You guys what, can't what? say that. You can't say the L word on your show. Oh, sure. I, well, we see, the, the we thing is, uh, there's still like seven, like you said, six minutes left. So until we get to our show. There you go. I that's a good what's, point. Yeah. What's your acceptable outcome in tomorrow's game? We'll discuss that. Yeah. Because the deck is certainly stacked against Brigham. Uh, but we will talk to Dennis Pitta, the tight end with the most receiving yards in NCAA history. Uh, current slash former Baltimore Raven? I don't know how to answer that. Uh, and Trey Dye, our current. two-on-one conversation with current. Trey Dye, who scored the final touchdown for yep. BYU against Utah. Okay. Sounds like an uplifting, um, optimistic show. It definitely will be. Once, <laughs> we're going to discuss the, sports. We we're going to leave the yeah. positive, negative out of it. We're just going to talk. Mm-hmm. Good. Nice. We're not batteries. Mm-mm. So, is the weather going to permit tomorrow? Oh, they play. Yeah, they play. They play. Yeah. There's no question they will play. It's just, will it be sopping weather? Maybe there's some lightning strikes that might be delayed. But see, now maybe this there's could. No, there's no lightning in the forecast tomorrow. This could uh, turn the tide. Maybe you know it'll cause uh, Wisconsin to not play so well. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it slows them yeah. down a little. Yeah. Bit. They're power, man. They're just so strong. Yeah. Wow. You always got some power on that defense, though. That's that's be saving grace. The defense you got a chance with the defense. We, yep. If you got defense, you always have a chance. That's right. You have de- if you have a defense or if you have a Taysom. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good or bad, positive or negative, BYU Sports Nation is coming up here in just about four and a half minutes. And that's neither good or bad. It's just a fact, right? It is what it is. Amen. All right. Have a good show, you guys. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Jeff. Wow. You know, speaking of the weather, Cole, it's dark in here. Yep. It's crazy. I mean, I know a lot of people get depressed by... The rain, by cold weather. I'm not one of those people. 
I kind of like it. And we have I these large sweeping windows in the front of our building at the BYU Broadcasting Building. Beautiful yeah. facility. Um, so normally it's bright and sunshiny at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Friday when we're doing this show. And today it's very overcast and dreary and it's seeping into the whole building. And, and it's I wonderful. Like it. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the weather, I want to talk about our panning for good segment for today. There's good in them dire hills. So, obviously, it's not the same weather here as it is everywhere else in the United States or the world, for that matter. But something that is true is that there's just really not a whole lot to see this weekend if you go to the movie theaters. So I wanted to give you some ideas of things you could do with your families at home on a day like this where the weather's not great or there's just not much to do outside that you can think of. Why not go camping in your basement? Build a fort with your kids. They love that. They just hear the word camping. It doesn't matter if it's not outside. It doesn't matter if you're not in a sleeping bag. Just say the word camping and you've got them. Uh, I've done this a couple of times where I will, I will create a restaurant in my own kitchen. I will take the part of the waiter, the chef, and I will even serenade my daughters and my wife with a wonderful song. So this is just another thing you can do to create atmosphere and to create memories for your loved ones. And then also another thing you can do is instead of reading a book... How about just play a little game of telephone story where you start off by telling one sentence of a story, pass it on to the next kid and the next kid, and you all build this story together. It's so much fun. They're so silly and ridiculous. But again, creating memories, doing things inside together that are not watching a movie or, you know, playing a video game. Fun things that you can do over the weekend when there may not seem like there's a lot to do. Anyway, More ideas like this on every show of Screen Cleaning. That's going to do it for this show. We'll see you next week.